Welcome to the Washdown Podcast, episode number 94. And tonight, our guest is retired police officer Travis Gribble. Uh, we had a great conversation, um, got to learn a lot of stuff. He shared his story. And look, I would encourage everybody to listen and listen close. Um, there are a lot of lessons to be learned, um, a lot of things that we've talked on the podcast about um, at length. Um, but look, just watch the episode, listen and listen all the way through. Um, he is doing some great stuff now. Um, and he is a perfect example of coming out the other side of PTSD. So here you go. Episode 94 of the Washdown podcast with special guest, Travis Gribble. All right. So we're recording now. Travis, thanks for coming right. on the show, man. I appreciate yes, sir. it. I, I appreciate you having me, Jeremy. Thank you. Um, so, you know, like we just talked about, why don't we just start with a little bit about where you're from and uh, yeah, what you're doing. Right on. Absolutely. So, yeah, I grew up in uh, Michigan, um, you know, just lived pretty small town life, uh, played football, baseball growing up. And yeah, pretty normal childhood. Um, always knew I wanted to be a police officer. So kind of followed that track. And yeah, I worked in, um, I worked in Michigan uh, for half my career, about 11 years. And then it always wanted to work for a really big city. So I did a search all over the country and ultimately ended up going to uh, Mesa, Arizona. When I was in Michigan, I had, you know, done, I worked for a small department. So did the normal uh, deputy road patrol stuff. Um, I was involved with, wouldn't call it necessarily a SWAT team, but it was a tactical response team that myself and actually another person were tasked with getting it up and off the ground because they didn't have anything. So pretty much plagiarized SOPs from other agencies and <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, man, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Don't do the fireman exactly. thing where, oh, it's not broke. Well, let's break it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've, yeah. I've seen both sides of that for sure. And so, yeah, we put something together. So I had the itch for that, for definitely working, you know, the tactical side of things. And then went to Mesa, Arizona, because they had a great lateral program, much like I think when I was doing it back in 2008, it wasn't as popular. People transferring to other departments, but now it's become, you know, we got people paying signing bonuses, all sorts of stuff, trying to recruit people from other agencies. So it was fairly new, but they had a good yeah. program getting me some experience in the pay level and stuff. So I ended up moving my family across the country to Arizona. So uh, that's a pretty big change from uh, Michigan to Arizona. It is no doubt. Yeah. And I mean, of course, you know, I know it's not for everybody as far as making number one, a move like that. I had, my boys were small at the time and, but I just, I went for it, but yeah, just the climate alone, you know, one of the things I did not like about the cold weather was working in it. But uh, so yeah, going to Arizona, you know, great weather, except for, you know, there's, four or five months they get pretty brutally hot and so that was an eye-opener but I still would take the heat over working in the snow and 
blowing cold any day. Oh yeah, dude. I grew up in Louisiana. So, you know, 40 degrees is like, that's super cold for me. And I ended up in Iowa in college and then moved Mm -hmm. to Missouri after that. So yeah, it's been 20, 22 years now that I've been down here and I'm still not used to the cold. Okay. Yep. (laughs) And yeah, I now live in Montana. So everyone's like, Hey, you're going to be able to handle it. Well, I do like the cold when I'm not working in it and, you know, getting out and playing in the snow and that kind of stuff is good. So I'm looking forward to that part of it, but yeah, anyway, I mean, you asked about where I am now. So, I mean, I probably should backtrack. Good to know a little bit of my career in Michigan, but um, if that's where you want to go, I can give, you know, how it got me to Arizona and all that. And just, it's kind of part of the story to tell what I'm here and why I'm talking about post-traumatic stress. So, Hey man, whatever you want to talk about, I've, I've got all kinds of time. Yeah. So I think it's recording to my computer. So (laughs) there you go. Yep. Well, that's good. No, I think it's important. And so I have done some, uh, been very fortunate to do some public speaking engagements, you know, to talk about my story. And so it's been good, but yeah, I mean, as far as going into law enforcement, probably much like any other law enforcement officer or a firefighter starting in that career, you know, when you're young, you, you don't know what you don't know. You know, you're just in it. You're looking for action. You know, you're looking to, for the excitement. You do have a part like, yeah, I want to help people. I want to, I think, you know, I think some people are definitely, it's just something in their blood. Like they have a servant's heart. So they want to go out there and help the community. So that was me. And, you know, pretty early on in my career and a lot of these things that I'll talk about, you know, I didn't realize when you're going through it because I was naive to when I've looked back now and went through my trauma to like, man, all these things were really shaping me. And part of the thing I'm trying to do is to reach out to newer people going into as a first responder to like, it's okay to get help early on because as I look back, like lots of these calls shaped me. But for instance, you know, my very first call when I worked for, it's actually before the sheriff's department. Cause in Michigan, I put myself through my own, through an academy and then you're just trying to get a job. So you get your license uh, certified in the state. So I worked for this one square mile town. My very first call patrol call was a one car accident. And I get there and, you know, I see the car is fully engulfed and I'm like, Hmm, that's a strange smell that I've never smelled before. And I go up there and there's a guy literally hands still on the steering wheel. And he's, you know, I mean, he's already deceased, but you know, I never will forget that smell. So things like that, you just think like, wow. I mean, you know, they don't teach you that in the academy. Like, Hey, these are things you may come across and why, you know, back when I was starting in 1996, talking about mental health, it was the most you talked oh. about was like, Hey, suck it up. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Oh yeah. Suck it up. And buttercup. So, <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, you just kind of, in some ways you become numb to it, but you don't realize what's going on in your head as this career goes on. And then, yeah, once I transferred to the got to a bigger department, still very small sheriff's department. Within two weeks when I was in the field training program, two of our deputies, they were going after a guy in a warrant, a local guy known, and they both were shot. One of them shot in the head, the other one shot in the shoulder with a high-powered rifle. And they both ended up surviving, but like I spent some nights just on 
guard duty for the officer that had been shot in the head because the suspect had got suspect had got away for a while and we didn't know if he was going to come after him or what but you know that shaped me too like that was probably the real punch in the face that I, I always say kind of shaped my career and how I trained for it because you know again you hear about law enforcement I, I was not naive I knew I was putting on a bulletproof vest and carrying a gun but you just don't think about like hey I could it's oh, shot. it's never, yeah, it's never going to be you. It's, you're not right. going to be the one, you know, we do the same thing on the fire department, man. It's, it's not going to exactly. be me that gets trapped in the building. It's not going to be me that has the malfunction on my SCBA, you know, right. it's, it, it'll be some other person and, and I'll go save exactly. them, but it's yeah. not going to be me, you know, and that's right. to, to circle back to that whole, you know, the preparation for coming into these career fields. I mean, that's a drum that we've been beating and talking about on this podcast for forever. And it's like, how do we prepare the next generation coming in? And we right. really don't have a great solution other than mm -hmm. just keep harp. I mean, it's not a great term, but keep harping on, Hey, get help early. These are the things mm -hmm. that, you know, you're going to see and don't buy into the hype and the bullshit of, Right. Uh, you know, oh, if you can't handle it, then you're not built for this, you know, or exactly. whatever, because everybody has a limit. Everybody's got a cup right. or whatever container you want to call it. Yep. And you can pour all the trauma you want in there, but eventually it's going to start coming out. Absolutely. And brother, I really appreciate it because I've heard you talk about that you're going to the academy. And like, that's part of my passion to try to get involved because I kind of look at it a two prong approach. Like if I can get to, like I just spoke to last week at the Montana Chiefs Conference, if I can get to the number one change agents or at least the you know top couple people up there and then get to the new people coming in the career, like I'm hoping somewhere we meet in the middle. I know there's gonna be some people in there that have been you know, ingrained in these careers or we're like, hey, whatever, I'm not gonna listen to this stuff. I'm okay, screw it. Um, but yeah, so I look at both those like, very important to get through to them hopefully to reach but yeah so i didn't i didn't expect any of this but yeah it just kind of shaped my career and then i went on you know through my michigan career you know working in a small area and i also lived in that area i, I have a huge heart for the smaller agencies because you being in kansas city and then me finishing my career in mesa like I see it different because a lot of the smaller agencies, like they live and work in their communities to where they can't get away from these calls, you know? And yeah. so I would have suicides that I knew the families, you know, um, fatal car accidents, whatever it may be, that it was just really hard to get away from it. And I didn't realize that at the time, but like, hey, these are all taking a toll. Like it is yep. not normal for my brain to walk into a house to see a person that's taken his life with a gun and I know that person and his family like that's not an easy thing but you know we have to be the professional not show emotion or at least we yep. think we can and yep. handle the call you know what I'm saying yep so I know exactly what you're talking about yeah so I have a huge heart for that but so yeah I continued on with that and like I said I did the SWAT thing I was always very big about training myself because working for a smaller agency there's just not a lot of money for training, not a lot of ammunition. So I always did my own stuff. And I guess I kind of created my mindset of like, hey, I was just always gonna be, not be complacent. And so I had been looking to go to a, a larger agency, but I was even in some process with a couple other people then, but then in 2005, 
it, again, working for a smaller agency, sometimes there's not a lot of calls for service. What we would do is the county court would put out a warrant list and say, hey, these people who live in the county, they have warrants for their arrest. So me and a couple of the guys, like when it's slow, like we'd go knocking on doors or try to find people that had these warrants. So we were going one night for a seemingly, uh, and you should never say that, but seemingly as you look from the outside, it was just a warrant for someone that had not appeared for a drunk driving arrest. So a routine, so, nothing call. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it, yeah, yeah. I had one of those. That, but, you know, <laughs> but that's the mentality. Like you're like, okay, that's just a drunk driving warrant, man. 500 bucks. Let's go to jail and probably bond out right then. So it's a, a younger guy. And actually the deputy that I was with, he, he had grown up in that area and even knew this guy. So he's even saying like, oh yeah, this guy's going to come with us, no big deal. So we go and knock on the door and it's a typical Michigan farmhouse with a mud room, if you know, like a mud room going yeah. into the main room. So he had come out to the mud room once we knocked on the door. Sure enough, our suspect answered and he was not being completely compliant, like didn't want to come outside really. And he had a pit bull that was going a little crazy. And so I was what we call the the uh, cover officer, the other deputy was in front of me making the verbal contact. And then I'm the cover officer. I'm watching all surroundings, all that, watching his back. I was concerned about the pit bull because I'm like, hey, if he comes out, he's going to be a problem for us. You know, even thinking he was barking so much like, hey, if this dog comes out and latches, I'm going to shoot him, whatever it's got to take, right? Yeah. And someone appears at this, it was a kitchen window, just a, a face, but they abruptly left like not walking away gently like they scattered from that window quickly and I told the deputy that I was with I said hey don't know who it was but I just saw a guy they disappeared well as we're talking the door kind of pushes open a little bit to see this this kid's hands and then just beyond him was his this ultimately was his dad standing there pointing a gun at us so the deputy in front of me he he goes down I kind of you know crouched down a little bit over him, I guess trying to make ourselves smaller. As I'm doing that, I unholster my weapon, order him to drop the gun, he doesn't. So I shoot and ultimately take his life. So what it turned out to be, and these are assumptions because he's no longer with us, but he was a Vietnam vet, dealt with a lot of PTSD stuff. He was legally deaf and legally blind and was he took lots of sleeping pills at night and so that night he didn't put his glasses on, didn't have his hearing aids in, had taken pills, and there had even been other instances of acting like this. So at the end of the day, he probably didn't know who we were, Was he shouldn't have grabbed a firearm not being coherent, right? Yeah, perfect so, storm of... Yeah, like this, exactly, perfect yeah. storm, man. Like nothing, like yeah, just, I don't know why he did it, I can assume, but then that, with that going on, I stepped back from trying to go to a bigger department because it actually became, I was cleared from the county attorney within seven days saying, yep, I was lawful. But then the civil disposition or civil suit took place and that lasted for five years. Uh, like just deposition yeah, that, after deposition, you know, and, and back then when I was going through it, um, you know, you're very angry about that. You're like, yeah, screw these people. Like I did everything right. But as I matured in my career, I realized at the end of the day, unfortunately, with our court systems, it's just business. The county commissioners, ultimately, mm -hmm. they look at like, 
Is it worth taking this to trial? Because in a civil suit, you only have to have 51% of the jury to say that we are responsible. And then you don't know what dollar figure. So ultimately the county, after five years, ended up settling for 3 million. So not happy about that, but at the end of it, when I saw it was coming to an end, that's when I actually went to Mesa. And when I got to Mesa, I still had to fly back a couple of times to finish some depositions. But ultimately it really helped me in my career because some of my younger guys, once I promoted and went back to the street, they were getting sued for use of force and obviously lawsuits have become even more prevalent now. So I was able, them hearing from me like, hey, I've been there. This is business. You did everything right. Let's just keep going. We'll deal with the, you know, the bullshit that comes with it. And let's just keep going. Unfortunately, that's our culture right now. You know, that, yeah. you know, officers can get sued anytime, just like yeah. I'm sure with you yeah. guys, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's probably a little bit less with us. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, definitely it happened and can, it's going to yep. continue to happen probably even more with the way, like you said, our culture is kind of, seems like it's turning. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, man, I, I get to Mesa and all's good. I go, you know, I, I had to go through an F a field training program again, but I, I was shortened. I only had to do six weeks cause I, you know, did what they asked of me. And then ultimately, <clears throat> I chose to go to one of the busiest districts, wanted to work night shift and got the squad that I wanted working in our main, we call it our central district, which was your typical, like you guys know in Kansas City, your prostitute, drug trafficking, high crime areas. And that's what I wanted to work on graveyards because it was hopping. And also, I liked not being in the sun. So, yeah. Well, and, I mean, you seem a little pale, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That Arizona sun probably treats well, you about the same no as Disney. <laughs> yeah, you better you better take care of your skin out there. That's for sure. But uh, yeah, you know. So, that's yeah. A, so go, I no, mean, go ahead, man. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, uh, um, you know, I went to a squad that was really active, and they had some guys on there that were already at this time. Our SWAT team was a part time team. I mean, we have other collateral duties. So most of the guys work patrol and then did SWAT on the side. And then, so I had a couple guys on my, on this graveyard shift and they they knew my background, like, hey, you should test for the team, which is ultimately what I wanted. And I was able to do that a little bit earlier than normal because they, again, with the lateral process, they were, they allowed me to do it after 18 months instead of usually the three year period. And so I tested and uh, made the team. And then six months into being on the team, they actually, our department decided to make our SWAT team full-time because we were nice. so busy. Yeah, doing like 300 operations a year and pretty much we weren't there for our patrol shifts anyway. So yeah. it was, they might as well take us off the scheduling books. So yeah, man, um, that was going well. At this point in my career, you know, I. I honestly remember thinking to myself and even telling, you know, I've been divorced and remarried, but even my, my wife now, and I, I had said, man, I can't believe that I'm not more screwed up with all the crap that I've seen and been a part of, you know, <laughs> so, you know, so stupid and naive, but <laughs> you know, uh, I, I get, 
Yeah, I'll let you in on a little secret, man. You were, yeah. you just didn't realize it yet. Exactly. And now I know that. So like, man, I probably should have been seeing people about all this. And not, not that any of the calls up to that point would have taken me out. But man, I mean, just like you talked about, like your cup being full or your bucket, whatever it may be. If I was taking care of all that other shit I dealt with in my career, when I get up to the point where I tell you my story of the call that really took me out, um, I think maybe I might have been able to deal with it different. I don't know. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. Yeah. It, and that's a hard one, man. That's one that you really, you can't go back in time and, you know, right. really answer that question to, you know, because, and I've done the same thing of think back and go, you know, if I was getting help before, maybe I wouldn't have gone down that path. And that's kind of why we started the podcast is try to, you know, help guys early. Um, right. And maybe head off some of, you know, yep. the stuff that we all went through. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, man, that's a, uh, that can lead you down a spiral for. Cause right. I think, quick. I mean, like what you're saying, why wouldn't we at least try like there may, like, let's say I'd even been going to get help the whole time. Maybe the big call that I did would have taken me out, but I still like, Hey, why wouldn't I try? You know, and that's exactly. what I would say to the new people, like you're trying to preach to that, hey, let's at least try to extend your career. Yeah. And then ultimately, like, yes, I love that you're chosen to be a first responder. But ultimately, I want you to get to retirement and enjoy the retirement that you deserve because you have sacrificed so much, you know? Absolutely. So, so that's what I would say, like, because I have had that, well, people say like, well, even if you'd have been getting help, wouldn't you, that call was so dramatic. So who knows? But anyways, yeah, so I get on the full-time team, things are going really well, man. Like I ultimately, after a few years, our team has a position called the, an assistant team leader, which is a, it is not recognized by the, by our department in Mesa, but it is recognized within the team. And what it is, is uh, when a position like that comes open, the team votes on it and decides who they want their assistant team leader to be. Cause I don't get any raise or anything like that. It's just, I'm now, yeah. Yeah. Just I'm more now, responsibility. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and it's a good, I will, it is one of the best probably mentor leadership avenues that I've ever seen as far as in our profession, because I was linked up with, and it all matters on who your team leader is that you're clicked up with. Definitely. Because my team leader, which was one of my biggest mentors, like he would give me the responsibilities that are usually the team leader because he wanted like, okay, you go plan this, this search warrant. You helped me with this barricade. And that gave me the basis for when I ultimately promoted. But so I did that for a while. And I think at about the six year mark, our team has always been, we've tried to look forward to that. If someone as a team leader is getting, we had three team leaders, if someone's getting ready to promote to lieutenant or someone's going to retire or go to another division, we wanted to have a plan in place to bring back someone that had been on the team previously, if that makes sense, oh, you know, as a sergeant sense. team leader. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so when we see those things coming, of course, the, the senior people on the team be like, Hey, who's ready to promote? And it's a risk because you go promote, you have to go back to the street for at least a year. And then there's no guarantees that the team will ever bring you back. Yeah. That's so the it's same. risky, right? 
Yeah. That's the same thing that I just went through last year of, you know, I promoted the captain and once you promote to captain, you're out of your station and you're floating the district and then you just end up wherever and you may or may not get back there, but usually you don't. So, (laughs) so yeah. And I mean, I, I guess you have to have, I wanted to promote cause I did, I was a Sergeant back in Michigan. So I knew again, I wanted to try to promote. Um, I'd always said that every time I would promote and I never got further than Sergeant, but that I would always be true to what I believed in. And if that meant I didn't get promoted to the next rank, then so be it. At least I was, you know, honest and true to my beliefs because you know, in politics and our, especially large agencies, Oh yeah. There's a lot of it, right? So yeah, the, the lighter color your shirt gets, the uh, the more <laughs> politics you've got to play. <laughs> oh man, crazy. So anyway, so yeah, so I I said, okay, I'm going to promote. So me and a couple other people put in and not because I'm smarter than anyone. I'm just a great test taker. Plus I knew the right people to talk to. I tested number one. And so this was in the fall of 20. 15 so the fall of 2015 and so when that goes on I think we ended up having man probably 20 25 people on the promotion list at that point and you know how it goes coming from like an agency like yours like you can look forward to see everyone in the sergeant's rank okay Mm -hmm. who's about ready to retire who's about ready to promote to lieutenant and so you could kind of gauge you know when you were going to be called up yeah. So I was planning right after the first year. So that would have been January ish of 2016. I knew I was probably going to get called up and it's not, you're not promoted at that time. You have to go through a training program, which is called the step program. Okay. And they, it's literally, they put you with a senior Sergeant and it's yes. I, some people it's like, Hey, how do you handle what we called hot calls? Like, go into an emergency call, person with a gun, person with a knife. That stuff came fairly easy to me because all the SWAT training that I'd had, like that was a no brainer for me, but I needed to learn how to, Hey, how do you do scheduling? How do you prove sick time? (laughs) The administrative bullshit that comes, you know, and I, which is stuff I hated because I was one of the sergeants, like I did not want to be in the office. I hated being in the office. Right. So I get called up and I start, in January of 2016. Well, so I was on the day shift and I was with a very, we call it, I call them, well, probably a lot of our people do salty crew. So you knew who the, who the most senior patrol people were based on their days off. So this crew worked Monday through Thursday, had Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. So they were literally the most senior patrol people in our, <laughs> some, of, some of the most senior in our department. So we go and my shift that day was working a day shift, 6 a.m. to 4 in the afternoon. And we start with a briefing. Even a shift starts at 6, allows people to throw stuff in their car, get logged on the computer. And then at 6.10 in the morning, 06.10, we would do briefings. So we did briefing and it lasted 20, 30 minutes. You know, just go over any information that needs to be pushed out, things like that. You know, just basic stuff. Yeah, this is the housekeeping. Yeah, exactly. And so after briefing broke, you know, the patrol people go out to shift or go out on the street. And then I was myself and the senior sergeant with me went to his office and he started training me on, you know, the administrative bullshit. 
somewhere, I think it was somewhere around 7, 7.30 in the morning, a call kicked out and the call, the person making the call was saying that he had just went to an apartment and had met up with a guy for sex. And when they were done with their act, the, the person living in this apartment said, I have a girl, if, a little girl, if you're interested. And this guy's like, no, I'm not into that. He ultimately ended up leaving. And so he gets a little ways away. Thank God he had somewhat of a conscience. And he calls into 911 and, and says, hey, what he had. And so I hear the call come on the radio and we're like, oh, we're going to take this. But still at first, I mean, man, you know, from coming from a big city like you do, like you get crazy calls all the time where, oh, yeah. I mean, I do. I wasn't hyped up, right? You're like, okay, we'll see if this even turns out to be for real, you know? Yeah. And the the weird part about it was, is the guy didn't want to tell his name or location, didn't want to see an officer in person. So I'm like, yeah, okay. I don't really think it's that weird for something like that, though. I mean, at least, yeah, you maybe, know. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because all the other stuff going along with it. That could yeah. Be. Well, anyways, there's a heads up patrol person that's going by this shitty park in the neighborhood and sees, we call them tweakers, a drug user on like a BMX bike, backpack carrying type dude. And he's pacing on the phone back and forth. This patrol officer is like, oh, this is odd. Goes up and gets out of the car, calls the stop out on this person and dispatch can hear the radio traffic and hear this guy calling. is like, yeah, this is our caller. So just a great job on by this patrol person. So now we have the person and he starts giving more details about what the suspect looked like in this apartment and gives us the exact location. So uh, we get there and it's kind of a, like, you know, apartment complexes are surrounding like a big courtyard yeah, and yeah. they don't have any back windows or doors. Yeah. So we're back in the parking lot. No one can see us. Right. And so we're conversing and there's a Lieutenant there that quite honestly, he's just one of those lieutenants that counting the days to get out or whatever his reasoning was. And he wasn't real keen on, you know, going in, he's trying to find like, Oh, we don't really have a reason. Yeah. Well, me i'm like yep there's what's called adjutant circumstances we need to go in and check the welfare of this possible little girl so i said hey we can just do what we call a knock and talk it's like probably people that are listening to this have heard about it with like narcotics officers like hey we suspect this person has these people are selling drugs out there we'll just go knock on the door and see what they say yeah. same type of thing we can go up there and knock so whether it's because in my senior sergeant, he's a really good guy, but he was just a guy that wasn't going to like ruffle any feathers either. Me coming from the SWAT world, I did not have a problem having confidence in <laughs> that telling Lieutenant like, hey, I'll do this. This did, is no big deal in did, my mind. Like, did you, did you take your cape with you when you left SWAT or did they make you turn yeah. that in? <laughs> right. Okay. I get you. Yeah. Yeah, man. I tell you, I know SWAT. We're kind of a bunch of knuckle draggers and we get a bad rap, but yes, I definitely, I mean, and sometimes we are brother. We are oh, hey, man. knuckle draggers. Yeah, man. We, we make the same jokes about the guys in our rescue division, but I'm oh, going to tell you totally. what, man, yeah. whenever the shit hits the fan and you need somebody there that knows their shit, 
He's like, hey, yeah. where are those guys at? <laughs> right, so. exactly. And that is, I mean, we're our, we're our own worst enemy at times. But yeah, but it just gave me, again, the confidence like, hey, this is no big deal. I can take these senior patrol officers up there. We'll see what happens. So finally, Lieutenant says, yep, go ahead, Travis. You take people up there. And so we did. And we go up and I set a couple officers, you know, kind of a cross cover on the door. And I'm, you know, standing behind them and say, okay, go ahead and knock and knock on the door. And a male subject comes out and he's wearing exactly what the suspect or the call taker had said. He's like in a pink ballerina type deal. So, um, so with that information and everything he had told us, I said, yeah, grab him. That's enough. So we're going to search his apartment. So got him taken care of. So an officer took him, you know, detained him. And I told the other two officers, like, hey, we're, let's clear this apartment. So they both went in first. And then I noticed, I come in right behind him, and I noticed off to the right, there's a closet door that's closed. So I need to, I said, hey, I'll cover that. So meaning I will stand outside that door, protect your back from this door while those, you know, I tell them to go ahead and clear the rest of the apartment. So they do and they come out and they're like, hey, you know, boss, I got nothing here. You know, nothing looks out of the ordinary other than what you may think, but just nothing about a little girl. So I said, okay, I got this closet. Let's, I'm gonna clear this. So I opened up on my own. There's not enough room for two people to do anything, but it's, if you ever seen some of these, you know, smaller apartments, it's kind of a closet slash storage area. So it's yep. like eight or 10 exactly. feet deep. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's just cluttered bullshit, you know, stuff probably like about knee high, the whole length of it. So I scan first, my pistol's out, I'm checking everything, nothing, don't see a person, anything like that. <clears throat> and, um, and I'm going to get through this because it's getting, I've had to talk about it a lot, but I'm okay with it. But so I look down and there's a black trash bag that looks something catches my eye just the way that it's kind of falling on whatever so i holster my gun i go ahead to grab it and it at virtually the same time as i'm grabbing what i can feel is an arm a head pops up and it's a little girl um, with her mouth is uh bound with gray duct tape i pick her up her hands are bound and her feet are bound and in the bag, the smell is overwhelming. She's sitting in her own feces and urine. So we get her out. And my other officers, we get her on the couch. We get the tape cut, obviously, out of the bag. Obviously, our immediate concern is like health and well-being. She is conscious, but she has no expression on her face. Like I'm telling you, like you'd think you'd have something, but it's just stone cold. No smiles, no nothing. No talking. And she's smaller, I won't give exact age, but somewhere around five. And um, so at that point, the rage hits me and it was everything I could do because this asshole sitting out on the patio and it's daytime. And all I can think is like, I wish it was nighttime because by this time, all these people are starting to gather apartments. They see something going on. And like, I, I literally wanted to put a bullet in this guy's head. Like that's like I that's the feeling going through me right now. You do not deserve to live. Yeah, and I got, I got that same feeling going through me right now. Right. That's, and that's how 
it's soul shocking. Like you don't, um, we're obviously, you know, you're, we come in a, we're in a world where unfortunately we know these things happen, but then to experience it is like on a whole different level. So at this point, the senior sergeant that's training me, he's got to check out emotions hit him. So thank God I was given the strength somehow to, to just buckle down. And like, now we had a scene to take care of. Right. And if you can imagine, I mean, you've been, again, you working for a big city uh, fire department, obviously the, the medical personnel that come in, we have, we have to call a team of detectives in commanders are coming because now it's starting to yeah. push throughout the city, what we have, you know? And so within the, any major scene like that, my first, like I knew she was being taken care of fire and EMS were in there. I knew we get along great with Mesa fire department. I, I love our people. Like they're amazing. And so I knew they were squared away. I knew they were going to take care of her. And I knew I had a couple other officers dealing with her. Well, then with a major crime scene like that, we have to then give a brief to the detectives arriving to tell them what they're about ready to walk into. Right. And if you can imagine, I had four or five detectives stand in a circle, I'm briefing them. And as I tell them what I found, they're all writing. And just to explain the soul shock, like they just come to a stop and they literally all look up at me because I think when you hear that again, like we all know that these things go on, but now you know that you're going to be a part of something like this is just, I, I don't, again, they didn't yeah. train me in the academy, right? Exactly. Like they didn't tell me like, hey, Travis, you may have to deal with this at some point. Um, so then, yeah, man, the scene just goes on from there. I end up going to the hospital. You know, they obviously take her to the hospital. And this is a big city hospital in our city um, to where, I mean, the trauma ER, like these are seasoned ER people, right? And so I'm staying at the nurse's station and they're going in and they're, you know, doing their evaluation seeing what injuries are getting her cleaned up and I will never forget that one of the nurses came out and she had to go to the sink because she vomited she had to vomit because you know if you can imagine what she's having to see in that room the injuries the things that just horrific man and so we do have at Mesa we have what's called a peer group so it's put in place to respond to help officers whether it's an officer-involved shooting or something like this. There's only two full-time people, which is not enough of a, a, we have 850 officers plus civilian staff plus dispatchers, not enough, two? right? <laughs> yeah, so not I enough. Mean, I, I can't really throw stones because uh, my department's not so great on that either. Um, right. A lot of us, you know, we kind of just take care of ourselves or outside yep. sources. So, but yeah, so, that's- uh, yeah. And we do have volunteers, like every, there's officers that can go through a 40 hour training to become a peer person, mm -hmm. but it's then trying to find them, whatever. But I did yeah. have someone respond as my peer person that day. And ultimately it's kind of interesting story. I vaguely knew her, but she ultimately ended up being my last SWAT Lieutenant. We have a very strong relationship now and just kind of connected through this call. But man, so, so this is where we get into the lessons learned, right? Of what I could have done different and what my agency could have done different. I'm sure as you know, 
with any major case like this, there's gonna be some sort of debrief, not a tactical debrief. It's yeah. gonna be, they ended up bringing in, I think this individual was linked up with the fire department and it was a mandatory. And I think at this time, there's probably 60 people there that have been connected to this call and it was touching everybody. We, myself and the senior sergeant, and let me, my senior sergeant, him and I never talked about this call after that, after that initial responding, because he was not that type of person. So when we left there to go to the hospital, it was no conversation, just look forward and drive. So nothing there. And a lot of that was because of our culture. You know, we just didn't, I came to Mesa PD. It definitely was not made known to me like Travis, hey, if you deal with a horrific call, we're going to help you out or it's okay. I mean, how many child deaths and suicides I had, no one ever said like, Hey, you okay? Like, yeah, let's get you some help. Right. Unfortunately, that's part of the culture nationwide in police exactly. departments and fire departments all over the place. And that's it. Right. ultimately what needs to change is the culture to make it more acceptable. I mean, right. I think whenever we were talking on the phone the other day, I mentioned, uh, that study that I read from the University of British Columbia, mm -hmm. they, they polled a bunch of firefighters about if they would seek mental health services or not. And over 90% said no, because of how right. they would be viewed if they did. Right. Yep, exactly. And you know, what's another crazy thing, man, as I'm finding out, as I'm starting to speak and talk with other agencies, most agencies don't even have it defined what a critical incident is. So what happens is for instance, like, whatever, a child death, a murder, suicide, that you go and your officers respond to this and a supervisor, you know, as an on-scene supervisor, you should be able to say, this is a critical incident. Now from there, we're going to give them some time off. We're going to help them get assistance, whatever it may be, instead of major agencies in the United States are just flopping, like, and they're mm -hmm. case by case, like, hmm, is this a critical incident? Well, let me think, ah, you know, or someone will say, yo, maybe it's not. And like, yeah. that is one of the first things I'm trying to advocate for is like, define what a critical incident is. Yeah. Take it out of the hands of the officers, the firefighters hands, and then yeah. even the supervisor's hands are like, nope, you know yeah. what's about to happen. Have, have you know an SOP, have an SOP yeah. or a gag or and a gog or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. yeah. And I am so... I guess I was just dumb to think how that seems now, as I look where I'm at, it seems so simple to me. And mm -hmm. again, I under, I'm not talking a three man department in the middle of Montana. I'm talking major metropolitan mm -hmm. Mesa PD is the 35th largest agency or city in the United States. And they didn't have critical incidents defined until recently. So it's like, yeah. man, I, it's just, but anyway, so we had to go to this mandatory, debrief and uh, man we oh i mean you know i'm sure you've been a part of these and like you go in there and coming from a large agency two-thirds of the people in there i've seen their faces before but i've never even had a conversation with them mm -hmm. and it's like hey let's share our feelings time what are you guys going through and i'm like i could not get out of that room fast enough uh yeah i don't and know so, if, yeah if your department was kind of like mine, but uh, anytime they say mandatory, <laughs> automatically. Yep. Oh like, man, you're like, nah. yes. Yeah. Right. It's shut down because you do have to have buy-in to even want to go to that. Mm -hmm. And it's just, yeah, it's a, 
man, just another thing. Like we need to, I understand the time and the place for those types of things that, but just the expectations can be a little bit crazy. So, but after that, man, I literally, not one person from my department to include lieutenants, commanders, chiefs, anybody ever came and said, hey, we know you pulled that little girl out of the closet. We, you need to take some time off here. You need to, we would like you to see somebody. This can be traumatic for anyone to even the point where my, you know, of course, this is a big news story. My chief at the time had 32 years on with our agency. And he said in his 32 years, he had never seen anything so horrific. And this dude was a hard charger, had been through every, every high speed, um, unit in our department to include homicide gangs all that and he says that but yet no one comes and like gives us any help and ownership now my man like i seriously look back i should have had the balls to say i don't care what you people think this ain't cool like i should not my mind is not prepared for this but again when the culture is so strong and that's why i hear you talk about smashing the stigma making it okay to come forward that's if you create that culture then someone can say hey i need help no like, this is not okay yeah and some off. of it would mean good no go ahead some of it with me man is uh it was also the perfect storm like i wanted to get through the training progress and get my stripes i will ultimately want to get back to the team and i mean my team at the time you know, I was, you know, the special operations division, we sure as hell didn't talk about, oh, that call kicked my ass or whatever it may be. It's like, you know what I mean? We didn't, it wasn't okay to talk about that stuff. You just didn't, you know? And, and I grew up in an era, and I'm sure you've seen so many guys and gals, there's, their personal lives are such shit shows. They drink too much. They're on th- three or four marriages or having affairs left and right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of them would come in and still perform okay at work. Oh yeah, but you and then you know the senior people be like, oh that's just Johnny or whatever. That's just how they are, you know. And they'd laugh it off. Yeah. Now you look back, you're like, man, they were dealing with some shit. We should have been mm-hmm. helping them. The uh, the the job is almost always the last thing to suffer for exactly. those people, you know, and and myself right. included. It was the same thing. <clears throat> You know, yep. it didn't matter how much I drank the day before or what else I was doing. I was still at work. Right. And I was still performing. Yep. But right. Yeah. Mentally, yeah. who knows where I was at. Yeah. And that's and kind of going down that line, man. Once I so I did, I got through the promotional thing, got my squad. And that's what I did. I buried myself in work and I was high performing. Like I brought as much SWAT stuff as I could to my I went back to Central Graves where I had worked because that's where I wanted to be a sergeant and I had some hard chargers in fact there's six of them that had worked for me on that graveyards they're now on the full-time SWAT team because I brought in extra training we just we were hammered man we'd go into shift like what felony suspect are we taking to jail tonight and I loved it but what I was doing is I just now again as you see you've gone through therapy like I was burying myself in work because my symptoms were immediate to where I would, I didn't like to be alone. I had just recently been through a divorce. So I would, you know, I'm living in an apartment. If I didn't have my boys with me, 
I did not want to be alone. So I would drink or do whatever, or just work more to try to stay. Cause I didn't want my mind to slow down. Cause when I did, that's when I would think about the call. I didn't like going to sleep because usually when I would, you know, I drink more to try to make myself not blackout or anything like that, but like, okay, hopefully I'll hit my head off the pillow. I'll go to yeah. sleep pretty quick. The problem was, is I'd wake up two or three hours later, my mind would go racing back to the call. I started having what I was calling them panic attacks, but I would wake up in the middle of the night. I now know they were night terrors to where I would wake up, not know where I was. I felt like the walls were closing in. Um, at first, the first couple of times it happened, I thought I was having a heart attack. I was very close to calling 911, but I, I had to get outside, breathe fresh air like I didn't. And so I'm like, oh, just must be panic attacks. Because I think I had read some things. Oh, some people just have panic attacks. And I, you know, I, it was I so I love stupid. how you just rationalizing it away. <laughs> I did. I mean, I looked for everything of like, okay, what? Yeah, oh, yeah, I must just have panic attacks. But I was having the night terrors. And then, so I kept hammering, hammering, hammering. And then, man, I guess 2017 late spring early summer i'm dealing with all this shit i'd noticed too i mean i was angry i had very little patience for my boys like now my you know especially my youngest him and i now joke about i mean i was so structured of anal because i tried to prevent any more stress coming into my life but i would take it out on them to where i was short fused i expected way too much and now knowing like, yeah, I was just trying to make everything fit in this little box because I had no room for any extra stress because things were like bubbling up, man. Yeah. And um, I finally went in 2017. So I go to whoever, well, he's still there, actually, the peer guy and said, hey, man. And I didn't tell him what it was about. I said, oh, I probably should go see somebody like it'd just be good for me to check in. I went through the divorce. And so our department at that point was contracting with clinicians. And I have an opinion about that. I'll tell you in a second, but the, they were the same clinicians that also did the pre-employment, like go through and answer the stupid psychological test. But then they also would see officers and, and firefighters for, you know, whatever. And I now think that's a bad idea that if they're being paid by the city like that, like under a contract, uh -huh. I think, they're, what do you think? I think they're most loyal to the city. Uh, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. I just yeah. had that conversation with somebody uh, the other day about a situation like that. And I was like, yeah, no, it's a conflict of interest. Either, I agree, man. Either you're there to help us and, you know, be our advocate. Right. Or you're on the side of the city, more or less. And even if that's not true, even if you are 100% above board, that's how we're going to view you. Yes, exactly. And that what you just said right there, that's how we're going to view them is exactly mm -hmm. right. Yeah, I want someone. Yes. If I go for help, ultimately, the city's going to pay for that help. However, it's not under a contractual basis. Like, you know, you're, you're under contract with these people. So yeah. I go to this guy and he was nice enough, but man, and now the reason I know what I'm about to say these things is because when, when I put in for my post-traumatic stress injury retirement, I had to get notes from all therapists. And so I was able to get his notes. Mm -hmm. So the first time I went in, I, you know, and I, I call this, it was like my therapist dance. 
I didn't trust therapists to begin with. My only time in law enforcement I ever had any, um, you know, contact with them is when I got in that officer-involved shooting. It was the typical like, oh, you got to go see this guy, and they yeah. have to say you're good yeah. to go to go back to work. And it was, I mean, totally rigged <laughs> on my part, rigged on his part, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. And this guy was like, I said, hey, I think maybe I'm drinking too much, and. On his notes, I see, told him not to drink as much. Literally, those are the words he said. Um, maybe a little stressed at work. Okay, well, you know, try not to, you know, take the calls home. No real, you know, suggestions for therapy. In fact, on his forms, there's all these boxes. Recommend EMDR, recommend cognitive behavior therapy, whatever it may be. He didn't even check any of that, right? And then it wasn't even, hey, I'd like to see you in a week. He said, hey, come back when you need me. Okay, so I walk away from there. I'm like, well, shit, I must be okay. You know, it's bullshit, man. And I get, Ugh. I can laugh about it now, but man, when I saw these notes the first time, I was pissed. I'm like, this guy, like, is how many other people did he do this to? And actually, I do know now there were some other people that had issues like, hey, this guy isn't putting in the time and effort, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then I went on a little bit longer and then it starts getting talked about me going back to the team as a team leader. There's going to be a position open, but on patrol, I dealt with some pretty major calls, like a couple murder suicides involving kids. And I had never, like I could literally walk into those types of calls prior to this call with Ruby, this little girl. And I could be like, yep, no big deal. Blood, all that stuff never affected me, but anything with a, a child, I could go handle the call, but then I couldn't wait to get back to my patrol car. And I would just like, I'm thinking about that, that previous call in 2016. I'm not okay. I would go home. I couldn't sleep. So, and, and now that I know through therapy, it's like, man, my, my shit was adding up here. You were like, stacking, man. <laughs> you right. were stacking plates on top of plates. <laughs> yes. The brick wall was coming. And then every time, like you're saying, that's a good um, analogy stacking plates like stacking plates more bourbon stacking plates more you know whatever it took mm -hmm. I had a real problem I couldn't I suspected everyone around me like I I mean I just like I'm thinking I'm dealing with suspects and child cases all these things and these thoughts are going through my head I'll tell you man suicide was always an option for me I was never one that was like sitting there with a gun to my mouth but I would go pick up my gun because I always carry off duty or putting my gun in the holster for shift. I think like, what? yep, this is how I do it. Uh, you know, and it wasn't, I've later found out that that's very common in our profession. Number one, because we're so very comfortable with death that mm -hmm. it's just a part of our, unfortunately, it's a part of our lives, you know, that we see it all the time. And like for me, there was no mystery with firearms. There was no mystery well, what would it look like if I did this? Yeah. That's all like, that's gone. So like, I've already taken those few steps that like someone else that maybe has no experience or being around death would be going through this process. And I later found out that's actually very common with like someone going through something in our profession or a military, you know, a veteran or something like that. Like, yep, this is, the mystery is gone for us. So yeah. it's an option. Yeah. And I would always know like, yeah, if I can't make myself better, oh, I could always do this. Yeah. And so obviously not good. 
Um, but again, high performing at work. No one knew I'm getting brought back to the team at this point. And I even kind of sold myself, okay, I won't have to answer or deal with these patrol calls, right? And you know, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, just, and I won't have just, to do patrol calls. I'm just gonna do right. really like cool watch it. Yeah, yeah, hostage rescue mm -hmm. where you know, don't shoot the hostage. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that was just stupid. But part of it too, I was thinking, I mean, obviously I love my patrol guys and I had good sister sergeants and all that, but I'm getting back with my brothers, my team that I come up through with these guys, like, okay, I'm back with them. You know, I felt like almost a security, a safety blanket, you know? Yeah. And um, so I get back there and man, at that point I had a Lieutenant that was my former team leader. He was a really good dude or is a really good dude. And, but he was on his way out. And then that female Lieutenant that I talked to you about on patrol, she comes in and there's only been a couple of times on the team that we've brought a lieutenant in that had no SWAT experience. Both times we've been fortunate. They both were amazing. And she was no different here that, but she didn't know SWAT stuff. So because her and I had built a relationship out on the street, cause she was actually a graveyard lieutenant. She leaned on me pretty heavily and it's interesting. And I don't say this to condemn her by any means. She, when she listened to one of the other podcasts I did, she said, Travis, I was in tears listening to you say this and I feel so bad, but there's nothing against her. But because she had faith in me and, and knew me, she relied on me a lot because I was only supposed to be on call once every three weeks as a team leader, but she was constantly calling me to where I'm just going to everything. And, I, and on me, I wanted to be there. It was my yeah. brothers out there. My brothers are going to go and be on a call. I want to be there and help them. Yeah. You know, that's just how we operated, you know, just like, I mean, I'm sure with your crew, if you're on a day off and they get into something oh, terrible yeah. or you're like, shit, I wish I would have been there. Yeah. You if know? I'd have been there, I could have done this, or maybe I would have saw that mm -hmm. or yeah, dude. I mean, I yeah. know exactly what you're talking about. Right. But what it did for me, unfortunately, is it, it pushed me even more, giving me an avenue of like, okay, if I work nonstop, I don't have to deal with this shit, right? Yeah, and that's totally well, sustainable, this, by the way. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm a perfect example of why. Well, I ultimately went to that other therapist two other times during this time because I kept going back. And every time it was funny, man, as you look, as I look back now, I was giving him a little bit more information each time. And so, Ultimately, the third time, and again, you know, I, I guess I won't hold back, but damn this guy for being so light about this. I told him about the case with Ruby. And he literally in his notes put, has problem with call from girl and bag. And that's all it was. So I literally gave him the details of this call and still again, no, like to me and talking to my now therapist, she, like that's a red flag. Okay, we need at minute of minute of or, or minimum cognitive behavioral therapy. We need, and then she would have said EMDR, all this stuff. Like yeah. you got a problem here, you know. But again, so I was finally, to be quite honest, to the middle finger towards therapists, like screw you. Well, also during this time, I had then. Um, met my wife who is a Mesa officer and ultimately we ended up getting married 
and she worked um, with, she had been on patrol, but then she ultimately gets a position with, as a detective with internet crimes against children. So very, just nasty stuff. She had, she had also worked for Seattle for a while and she had done it up there, but they were at the time, the only unit in our agency that they were required to go to quarterly checkups with a therapist, which I commend them, right? Yeah, they needed absolutely. to be doing that. Yeah. But I would say maybe not quarterly, but that's the kind of thinking we need to have for everybody else. Right. Yeah. And they funny, just a, just all these connections, man, just amazing. And like, um, yeah, nothing's, we don't believe in any of this coincidence. Like I believe God was in charge here, but, um, ultimately her unit had been seeing that same guy that I had been to and they did not like him. They're like, Nope, this guy's worthless. So they reached out, did some research on their own. And there's this great group of therapists and it was started by a phoenix firefighter called public safety crisis solutions so they somehow got hooked up with them and this therapist and they were i knew two of her detectives that were her partners and these guys were like you're salty crusty no emotion <laughs> just like when i heard that they liked this lady's a therapist i'm like what like those two but they had had success right so my wife started hammering on me, not hammering, but just, you know, G casually. Gently uh, prodding. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you should maybe go see Jen. But I always would come up with an excuse and say, I wish I was like, yes, I, I'll do that. But man, I could always give an excuse of like, hey, work's too busy or whatever. But, um, well, then in 20, I guess the fall of 2020, and we had had some pretty, and I can say this, we had some we were a very high operational team, had some just intense calls, hostage rescue with kids that we saved. We had another one, unfortunately, where, I mean, I won't go into lengthy details, but a kidnapping that ended up, a parental kidnapping that the guy was a shitbird, and one of our guys ended up taking the dad's life in front of the little girl. And those things were starting to stack, again, stacking on me. And I knew, like I would leave the calls like, man, I'm just freaking having a hard time with this. And, but I didn't want to tell anybody, you know, I just, my wife knew that I was dealing with some stuff and I had one really good buddy on the team that I would tell him like, Hey man, the shit's kind of hit me a little bit. And it kind of just be like, unfortunately us as guys do like, yeah, me too, man, let's go work out, whatever, you know, just stupid <laughs> yeah. shit, yeah. you know? And, um, but in the fall of 2020, we took a two week vacation and we went back because she's from Ohio and I'm from Michigan and we were visiting family. And I went to visit this guy that's been, he was a big role in my life because my dad wasn't around much from when I was like 18. And I was hanging out with him one night and um, I broke down telling him about this call from 2016. And he's not a law enforcement officer, not a first responder. He's like, hey man, like this seems pretty significant. Like I broke down like bawling like a little baby. And I said, yeah, yeah, you're right. And I ended up telling my wife and she's like, yeah, you really need to go see Jen. And, and then we went back to her place in Ohio, her family's place where her mom was having a retirement party, but her, she has a lot of law enforcement in her family. And there was a, a local PD guy there that I had become kind of friends with. 
and I'm sitting out in the backyard telling him I lose it again. Just like, what the shit, man? Like, and he's like, Travis, don't know you, but this seems pretty significant, man. Why don't you go get help? And it was enough for me that I even called that lieutenant, that female lieutenant from my vacation said, and I call her name's Diana, but I called her D. I said, Hey D, how you doing? And she knows all the call. Obviously she was there for Ruby. I said, Hey, I'm just struggling, had a little emotional breakdown. I'm going to go see, seek some therapy when I get back. And I said, but I got to know you're not going to take me offline. That's what I was worried about. <laughs> like you're going to, you know, and again, oh, yeah. then what is right? What does that tell us about our culture? Like I had to call my Lieutenant from vacation to say this because I was worried. How's this going to look? You know, I don't want to lose this position. And she said, and again, she maybe regrets this, but she's like, you're good. Just go get help. It'll be good. And she even told me, she said, I still struggle with that call. And um, so ultimately I go back. I literally, man, I kept putting it off and some more big calls take place. I'm like pretty much running on empty at this point. You know, my wife is like, Hey, you're on, it's your day off. Why are you going to work? Why are they calling you? So shit's just starting to add up, you know? And um, so we jumped through to like end of January, 1st of February. And I finally make an appointment with Jen. She's my therapist. This is the one that my wife and her unit have been going to. Yeah. And so we get it scheduled for March. And cause she's super busy, man. Like they're, yeah. Obviously, you have crisis calls coming in, all sorts of shit, right? Yeah, my and, wife is a, a therapist, and that's her clientele as oh, well. Oh, no is, shit. Yeah, police, fire, oh, and veterans. <laughs> so oh, I know so, all about oh, it. Man. So she gets it, yeah. yeah. Like every week, yeah. it seems like, holy shit, there's an... And I, I'm not... This is not bad. I'm just like, if people only knew how mm -hmm. many people were like, hey, this is crisis. We need help, like right now. Yeah. Um they would be like, holy shit, you know, because they think we're robots, you know, they think we don't feel any of this. Shit. Oh, yeah. But, so anyways, so this is a Monday, I'm supposed to go in and see her, but I'm the on call team leader on this week. I literally, man, I'm pulling into the office there to go for the session. And a barricade kicks out back in Mesa. Of course, I'm the on call team leader. One of my buddies knew that I was going into Phoenix for something, didn't tell him what. But he called said, hey, man, we'll, we got this. This sounds like a no big deal. Street Crimes has got some suspect in a house, doesn't want to come out. We'll handle this. I'm like, hell no. I'm the on-call team leader. I'm going, right? Stupid. So, <laughs> yeah. And you'll hear what, like, well, maybe not stupid because maybe it's what fucking pushed me over the edge. I, I don't know. But anyways, I head back to Mesa. I don't want to say typical because people, it seems light, but to us, typical barricade, three or four hours, we gas the place, finally dude comes out, take him into custody, no big deal, right? We uh, head, we're head back, all of our people head back home. I was only home for like half hour, 45 minutes, I'd showered up, and my lieutenant calls and says, hey, there's a hostage rescue brewing. So... I'm like, okay, give me the information. I'm throwing on clothes, getting ready to get in my vehicle and head. And the call is that a neighbor calls, says a little girl comes next door. Her arm had practically been shot off 
by her father. And this girl, man, she was probably nine or 10. She had escaped the house, but tells the neighbor, my older sister and my mom are still inside with my dad. So I'm hearing this and I'm like, okay, this is gonna, yep, gonna be a hostage rescue. I'm thinking we have what's called either a deliberate plan or a hasty deliberate where, hey, we've got some time here to plan it, you know, yeah. set charges, all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking in my head like, hey, this is gonna be hasty, meaning we're just getting there and going inside. And then even to the point where like, hey, this may even kick off before we go there to where patrol are gonna have to go in and go handle business, you know? Yeah. But anyways, we get there and yeah, I grab a team and we decide that we're gonna, we can get up to the house without being seen and we're gonna shotgun breach the patio door and make entry and go. So we do that shotgun breach and the patio door goes perfectly. We get inside, immediately see a male who ultimately is a suspect. He's obviously deceased with a gunshot wound to the head. Find what then turns out to be his wife, gunshot wound to the head, dead. And then we continue clearing the house. But the scene is horrific. And I later find out it's because the little girl, what had been happening is before he shot her, he had taken this little girl and smashing her head in the drywall, trying to beat her to death and then shoots her. She ultimately plays dead to where he stops, but she had been trying to sneak out of the house. So she's got blood everywhere. There's handprints on the wall, little prints, uh, footprints. So it's just horrific, man. And like, we're having to work through this. And then we get upstairs and we find her 18 year old sister and she's shot in the head dead. So just, I mean, just punched us in the face. Like I had a senior guy right then, like he's losing it. And he had, you know, a girl that age, it just hit home. I had some younger guys in there where I'm just thinking like, shit, man, you guys just had to see this. And I'm, for the first time in my career, you know, we, we're weird. Maybe you guys are like, this is firefighters, but we do the sadistic shit of like, oh, even if you don't have to be there, oh, go in there and look at this scene, new guy or whatever yeah. it is, you know? Mm -hmm. And I now, I now would tell people like, if you don't have to see that shit, don't do it because you want to leave space. But it literally is the first time in my career, I come out on the porch and like other team members are getting ready to try to walk inside. And I'm like, get the fuck out. Like I wouldn't let them in and I shut it down. And I'm really so thankful that I did that. And I don't, again, I'd never done that before. And I don't know if that was God moving me to do that, but I didn't want anybody, any other patrol. Obviously there's going to have to be homicide coming there. People yeah. that had to go inside, right? We had to have fire department come in and, you know, pronounce inside, yeah. put the, the monitor on. Unfortunately, I wish they wouldn't have had to seen that, you know, you know, that had to. And that's something that, I mean, has always kind of tripped me out a little bit, especially with those that are that obvious of yeah. why can't you guys say, yep, they're dead. They're missing most I, of their head. Brother, I have asked that before and they're like, nope, we have to do it. And I'm like, man, that, and that's a good point on your side. Like, could there be new criteria to say, do we have to have them? Cause these were obvious deceased. Yeah. Like, but you still have to come hook a monitor up, but I, yeah. I don't know, man. It's, 
yeah, it's, it's bad. But anyway, I'm thankful that I did that that day. Well, I mean, it was very apparent to even our lieutenants, everyone like, okay, this team is running ragged. And immediately was getting talked about, let's take them offline for a little bit, let them go home and get sleep. And they said, hey, let's meet down at a school in the neighborhood just to, let's all huddle up. Let's see how everyone is. I remember I get in my car, I'm by myself, and I just start driving towards school and just screaming, slamming my steering wheel because I was like, I mean, through all this, man, I will tell you, like, I talk about God now, but back when Ruby happened and up through this, like, I questioned if there was a God because I'm like, I was having a hard time knowing that if there is a God, like, how in the world can this crap be going on? And that's been a big struggle, but I've worked through that now. But I was just pissed. I just angry, man. And um, but yeah, they take us offline. We come in the next day. We were supposed to do training. Like every Tuesdays are our full team training. We met up the range. We we're gonna do some hostage rescue training. And we we're just like, nope, let's just hang out for a minute. There was people like shedding tears, like they hadn't slept. It just didn't hit home, man. And um, I think, I mean, obviously the scene was horrific. It's also a weird deal when you think you're going to rescue people and everyone's dead. Yeah. Like that's a, it's a hard because not that we're perfect by any means, but pretty confident that we can do hostage rescues. Like we're going to go there and save some people, you know? Yeah. And I think that was hitting home for people. And and then, so we end up just going back to our special operations division where our offices are. And we have a private area where it's just the whole, one whole floor is just for the SWAT team. We're just hanging out. And I will tell you, so I hadn't given you this, but during this whole time back with the team, like, remember how I said when I told myself, if I ever promoted, I was always going to be true to who I am. Yeah. Well, internal politics, man, like all during this time, like I... I will, I'll butt heads. I don't really care what your rank is. I will respectfully, if I think things aren't being done correctly, like I would always say, like, hey, this isn't the safest way. We need to do this. Or, or if I hated the thing, well, that's just how we do it. Well, why do we do it that way? You know, and I would be the one that, and I was just a real advocate for my people. Like I didn't, I felt as a sergeant, like they have no, they can't go and talk to a commander and say, commander, why are we doing this? I can, as a sergeant, I can go, Hey, can I request a meeting? And so I was butting heads specifically with some people in my chain of command, all the way up to the assistant chief. I had heard rumors of like, Hey, Travis, you got to calm down, not say these things. I'm like, Hey, I'll have a conversation, but I'm going to stand up for what is the right thing to do. And this is just a good point to remember. I think as people listen to this, I always found, I had a lot of administrators that say like, Hey, you just need to let the internal things go. Like that's no big deal. Like it's just part of the job. I, I see a lot of the internal stuff, man, that weighs to the whole and the whole it, scheme of things. Right. Well, yeah, it taints the whole culture. And that's whenever it you does. get into that, you get into that conversation about leadership and, right, you know, man. good, good leaders want the people that they are responsible for, that they are leading to come to them and tell them what the hell's yes. going on on the street level. Yep. Because you can set up there and you're, I don't want to call it an ivory tower, but you're, you're out of touch with what's going on, what yep. your people are dealing with on the day to day, because right. it, 
and I'm not trying to slam them or anything like that because they no. have the po the political thing to worry about. They For have sure. the whole department and it's a lot bigger view. And right. it's it's a hard balancing act, but a lot of them, it seems like, tend to dip way too far on that side and lose touch with, you know, yes. I don't want to say the stuff that truly matters, but at least for the bulk of the people that they're responsible for, it, the stuff that truly matters. I agree. Yeah. And it's not, again, like you're saying, I've never walked in their shoes, so I can't imagine because yeah, the politics that goes on up there, you're trying to please city managers, mayors, the community, but you can't forget about your people. Right. And, but I will say, and you'll know where I'm going with this, but all during this time too, we have, I'm sure you guys have performance evaluations like oh, yearly yeah. maybe. Yep. So we had that. And the last two of mine were all exceeds ratings, which means like you can get just, um, I can't think of the name, but average is the normal. We're like, yep, you're meeting all standards. Yeah. I got exceeds to where my lieutenant had to go and get things approved all the way up to our head chief. They have to sign off and read all the stuff saying, yep, Travis exceeds ratings, leadership, all this. And I'm getting these exceeds ratings, right? Which is a very low percentage at our city. And so yet I'm getting questioned. I'm like, okay, but things are fine. Like they're approving my exceeds ratings. Anyways, we go back to Metro, our division, and my lieutenant, her door was closed and I texted her and she didn't respond. I'm like, oh, that's odd. When my lieutenant's door is closed, like, Mm, something's probably not good and she's you say we're pale she's even more pale to where when she gets <laughs> like angry or any emotion just like flush she comes to the team leader office she's like hey can you go to the commander's office with me and I mean she's just no emotion but her face and everything I'm like oh shit and this is literally man like and also and this will come into play. My dad had just died two weeks prior. Wasn't real close to my dad, but we had in the last few years kind of rekindled. And like when he died, we were in a good place to where like, hey, yeah. we restored our relationship, right? But it was still very difficult for me because I missed a lot of years with him. And my lieutenant knew all this. Well, she takes me down to the commander's office and they sit me down, not even 18 hours removed from this call, new um other stuff because my lieutenant had tried to talk to them out of the talk them out of this they told me in five months i was being removed from the team they said hey we're going in a different direction and i i mean i'm obviously all this call had happened my lieutenant when they came to her they said you don't want this to happen for five months like he's dealing with the, the case from 2016 his dad just died. Plus, you know what we just did last night, right? And I think it was our assistant chief. No one has yet to tell me, said, nope, you're doing it today. You're telling him today. So I say that's not because I want pity, man, but because I don't even want to say poor leadership because it's no leadership to know that like, hey, can you step back for a minute and see the big picture? Because I really do talk about when I go and speak to people that are people in leadership positions can inflict additional trauma if they do not handle these things appropriately or speak appropriately. So with me, 
now it's a blessing in disguise. But anyways, I, I even asked my commander, I said, commander, who made this decision? He said, just above me. And I said, hey, you know, I've got these exceeds ratings the last two times. Well, just keep doing what you're doing. We're just going in a different direction. Terrible, <laughs> terrible, man. Like terrible messaging, oh. terrible, terrible attempts at leadership. But anyways, it's a blessing in disguise. So we left out of that office. My lieutenants, there was actually two lieutenants in there, took me back up to the office and said, Travis, we tried. We're sorry. Go home whatever you got to do so yeah i left after i met with my guys because i did tell the team because they knew when i came up they're like they can read me like what's up boss what happened and i told them they're like what you know of course this pisses off my team first of all in the initial like these assholes can't think like they know what we're going through right as a team and they're going to yeah. tell us that we're doing this now so just again a poor attempts at being a leader or whatever they thought they were doing. But anyways, I went home that night and, uh, you know, talked to Emily and she's like, I rescheduled my appointment with Jen, was able to get in the next morning. She said, Travis, you got to get help. Cause I was at the, like, man, I had been punched in the face 15 different times. Like I'm, I'm at the breaking point. So yeah, man, I showed up the next day and I don't know what it is. My therapist is amazing. She has, there's a couple of reasons why I think she's amazing. She gives you her background because she wants to have some buy-in. So her dad was a U.S. Marshal. She worked for Phoenix Fire Department for the critical, like the mental health response unit. Plus she was a probation officer for like 11 years. And she tells me like, hey, these are the people I've been treating. I've been treating firefighters, police officers. So right away I'm like, okay, maybe this lady gets me. And dude, I just dumped. I like sobbed, told her about the call, told her the thoughts of, hey, you know, everything about my sleep, my drinking. And she's like, oh, guess what? I'm making the decision right now. I am pulling you offline right now. We are going to get you stabilized. And at this point, I was like, yep, I need it. So when I say what ever asshole decision these people made above me, probably at the assistant chief level, a blessing in disguise because i don't know again hindsight 2020 would i have given everything up when i went in there based on everything that happened i don't know so yeah man and then i won't say it's easy um i never pull punches but i was about ready to embark on getting myself well and if anyone doesn't know, like with the therapy, like yeah, her initial concern was to get me stabilized. She wanted to start, try to help me get sleep. So she sent me into a, her, she works with a psychiatrist to get me on medication. And specifically, I can't tell you the names of them because I'm off of them now, uh, but PTSD medication that I would take before to go to bed, try to prevent the night terrors and to get me sleep. Cause yeah. she's like, I gotta get you rested. And now knowing and working with her, she was preparing me for the battle that was ahead. Yep. So again, very, um, very calculated and how, that's why a good therapist, if they're doing things right, like this is a process, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. And then over the next few weeks and cause the medication doesn't work overnight, but getting me stabilized and then she, you know, um, 
just created a relationship with me as far as like, hey, tell me what's been going on. Tell me about the calls. Tell me about your career. Just trying to figure me out as a person, right? And know how to treat. And then I'll tell you, man, one of the biggest things she did for me, and it's part of what my Instagram page is, my arena, is I always joke because my therapist, I always say she's kind of a hippie. She's kind of out there. I've done <laughs> sound therapy with her, all sorts of stuff. But yeah. she had this thought, man. And she, first of all, she hooked me up with actually this Phoenix, or no, I'm sorry, Scottsdale firefighter who literally, he tried to take his own life and ultimately gets brought back by fire personnel and just in a hell of a place. And him and I are now good buddies to where he had been going through the therapy for a while. So she's very calculated. Hey, I want you to meet Rick because Rick has been where you are. He's not all, he's not better or by any means like completely done with this, but he's further ahead than you. And I just want you to sit and talk with him and tell you, tell you what this looks like. And then she created this meditation night of, uh, and you know, the, the speech, the man in the arena mm -hmm. with Theodore Roosevelt. So she yeah. does this whole thing based on that, because I don't know how it was, man, whenever you came forward, but like when I came forward, I was ashamed. I felt oh, yeah. like I had failed. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just, just crushed. Yep. Like, I'm like, what kind of man am I? I can't deal with this shit. You know, I'm, yep. I mean, I won't use the words, but I'm a person less than capable, whatever it may be, you know? Oh yeah. And, and I'm so the only did. one. I'm the only Total. one. Yeah. Brother. And that's why I say like, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. And I love what you're doing because that's where I was. Like I knew that people came forward, but I was the person that made fun of people coming forward. And when I would look at them from the outside, I would condemn the shit out of them. Like you're a punk. You aren't strong. How are you so weak? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But I never even gave a chance to like sit down and talk with someone to feel or say like, Hey, you know, try to understand where they're coming from. I didn't even give it an option, yeah. which was, I feel, I mean, obviously I can't pull those things back. I'm very regretful that I was like that because I hope I didn't hurt anybody, you know, by doing that. But unfortunately that's how our culture was and how we were bred to think, man. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, I still see it today. Still see it we, today. Yeah. And it's, I don't know how to change it. I mean, other than guys and girls speaking out and saying, hey, yeah, yeah I went through this. This is what it is. And I came through the other side. And this is yeah. how I did it. And I'm good yep. now. You know, and I know yeah. the steps to take to get to good. So, yeah. You know, and, and I think tell that's, me, Jeremy, how much power is in there when you hear that from another person? You're like, holy shit, I'm not the only one. Exactly. It's huge, man. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing and why you're doing what you're doing. That like that is just gigantic to me. So yeah, she's brilliant. She does this meditation. And again, she doesn't she what's another thing that's cool about her, she's like, I won't ever pull any punches. If you aren't following my program, I'm gonna tell you stop screwing up. I'm going to meet with your family and tell them this is what he's got to do for therapy, all this. So I really appreciated that. But that night gave me, not that I was better. They're like, oh yeah, I'm good. I still was dealing with the shame 
and all that that I was inflicting on myself. But I had this little bit of a thing in my head of like, hell yeah, like, and I do, this is not me patting myself on the back, but in my opinion, I have a little bit of street cred because I've been through some shit. I've worked on a very high operational SWAT team. I've done some stuff to where if you want to come and talk to me about, you know, you're less of a man or whatever, like I've done all the shit you guys have done. But now, like, once I came forward for help and, and going through, I mean, I eventually got to EMDR therapy. That's some hard shit. Like, I will, and I'll never lie to anyone, like walking through those calls again and processing to reframe them and do all the things I need to do. Cause man, I was so screwed up with, I didn't realize this, like with triggers from the tape, triggers from black trash bags, triggers from the smell that I smelled that day. I didn't even realize it, but man, you've got to, and I don't know if you've done EMDR therapy, but no, going back, going you're literally walking back through those calls step by step to reframe it. And now to a point like I was, now I look at it as an honor and I'm thankful that I was there that day to help her. And I've worked through like, yeah, I will never, I'll, I'll give you an instance, like the, the triggers, like the duct tape prior to me working through that back in Arizona, go out and get in a tape drawer didn't even think about it. I see the gray duct tape, flush, got to sit down. I'm immediately back in the middle of that call, seeing her again. Now, yes, whenever I see gray duct tape, I will go back and I will think of, I'll, I'll know what it is, yeah. but I now I'm able to, I've reframed it to say, Travis, the call's not occurring right now. You're okay. She's safe. You literally like saying yeah. these things in your head, which you know, it always, to me, it sometimes seems so simple, but when you're in it, you don't realize it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? When you haven't got the help or the therapy, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. My wife is a, she's actually trained in EMDR and that's what she yeah. uses in her practice quite a bit. And, you know, she's, yeah. we've talked about it, especially, you know, in the, I've had her on the podcast and, you know, we've uh -huh. talked at length about all that stuff. But yeah, yeah, man, it's definitely being able to, to reframe and get those emotions away from the memory, you know, and totally. that's that, yep. that's that whole, you know, whenever she was getting you to, to get your sleep cycle back on and your circadian yes. rhythm back on, yep. that is so right. important. And in our, you know, chosen professions, sleep cycle does not exist. I mean, <laughs> you know, I work like, you, man. I worked yesterday, so I got off this yep. morning at seven o'clock. So yeah, I went to bed at nine thirty, yep. ten o'clock, but the ambulance went out two times. The truck went out. Oh man. We went yep. out, you know. And it's like, okay, well, of that from nine to six or ten to six, mm -hmm. okay, I was getting woke up every hour. Yep. So how much yeah, sleep did I really now, get? And I I mean, I don't know if we talked about this or not. I know I've talked to other people and what's happening back in Mesa. Like, okay, you've got 24 hours. Not to say that that's not hard, but now with these mandatory, like, yep, you're not going home. Now you're doing mm -hmm. 48 hours of that. Oh, yeah. Like, man, we are going, and this is the whole recruitment, retention. What are we going to do about it? Like, we are destroying people. Oh, yeah. Like, and I don't think the public, 
this is where we can get on the leadership, but I think fire chiefs, police chiefs, you need to be in front of your government, in front of the, in the news media every week telling the public, like, this is what's happening right now. Oh, yeah. You have to understand that it's unsustainable. Yeah. In my opinion, whenever I got on the job 18 years ago, it was, it wasn't unheard of, but it was very, very uncommon for anybody to leave with less than 25 years on. Cause that's whenever we were okay. eligible to retire. Yeah. Right. Right. In the yeah. past three years, we've had more people with less than five years on the job leave than yeah. people have retired. Crazy, man. It's, yeah. And we, you know, I, don't want to go into too many specifics, but, you know, because of COVID, we had an issue with our hiring process. So oh, we yeah. didn't hire yep. anybody for two years. We just lost a whole bunch of people. That's how we were, man. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. we have, we have stations right now, pumper companies and other companies that have no firefighters. They right. don't have a driver, you know. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's overtime every day there. You're right. detailing somebody in. I mean, it's like you said, it's not sustainable. Yeah. It needs to be fixed. And our leadership is trying to fix it, but we're so far behind, yes. you know, so far behind. And then if you take that even a, a step further, get back to the mental health con, you know, conversation, the fire service. And from what I know about police um, in my area, they seem to be a little bit further ahead than mm -hmm. the fire departments are um, okay we're 20 years behind where we need to be yeah. as far as with peer mm -hmm. support and therapists and resources okay. and all that stuff it just we're dragging our feet and i don't know why yeah and seeing that's interesting because by us back at well back in mesa and phoenix the fire departments were always leading the way like we would always piggyback off them like hey they're doing this new thing we need to do it but the end, and like we were saying about overtime, that's what's going on with patrol. Like mm -hmm. these, and the problem is these young kids kind of soak it up because they're like, oh, I can go buy this new truck. I can do this and that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is like, I mean, we can get into what I think about. Yeah, you see these guys that are constantly buying this, that, doing this project, spending this money because you don't want your mind to slow down because you're dealing with shit at work. But yeah, yeah, it's just, it's overall, it's just not sustainable, man. And I don't know what the answer is. Um, but yeah, so I embarked on therapy full on. I was off work. Um, I had, and I would suggest this to anybody, I had set up, I was doing FMLA. Do you know there's only so much time on that and you're burning your time? Yeah. But I had bought, I paid for short-term disability. And so I did apply for that and was able to get that. So I was getting my pay. And I was going to therapy two times a week and just hardcore, man. And the MDR therapy, like, yeah, when you come out of there, it is, it's exhausting. You know, even to where Emily and I, my wife, we had to come up with a plan to where, and she is amazing. She's been so supportive. But when I first started, like when I'm leaving, like, how was it? Are you okay? Like, but we had to come <laughs> up with a plan. Yeah. Right. Yep. To say, they, they want to know, right? Because they love you and they want to see what they can do to help. But, you know, that wasn't healthy for me because I didn't want to talk right then. I I literally feel, felt like I'd been in a fight. I'd experienced that call and I would say, hey, so this is our, this is our way we're going to do it. When I'm out of therapy, I will say, I'm okay. I love you. I'm on my way home. And she would know, okay, I love you too. 
and that was it. So we had to establish these rules. And then, you know, I kept pushing through and I don't know, man, probably the five month mark, my psychiatrist and my therapist both started talking to me about what are you, what are you thinking about extending this career? Cause you know, the difference with, and again, this is why I advocate for getting help immediately. I had spent five years with this call just in my frontal lobe constantly and it was cemented pretty hard and they both told me like yeah we're going to get you to a place to where we want you to have an amazing life you've already been in this career for 24 years we want you to enjoy retirement but we don't know what would happen if you go out go back to work and you experience another call like this or something similar are we right back to where we start so we did have an option in Arizona that there was a post-traumatic stress injury retirement, but it's risky. Um, it's once you submit your paperwork, you have literally just told the city, I can no longer work as a police officer. And if you go through the process and the board doesn't approve you, you're just out. No retirement. I mean, you'll get your money back, your contributions, but you can be done. So it's risky, man. Um, but my wife and I, we both, we knew for my well-being, like, it's a risk we got to take. And if we don't get it, we'll figure something out. Because, you know, and again, amazing wife and Emily that she's like, I want you here. I could give a shit about this career. You have done your time. You've experienced enough. Like, let's move on. And so I ultimately decided to put in for it. My therapist and psychiatrist, they have to submit all their stuff. And then I have to go to the city and to our retirement board and say, yeah, my intention is I would like to be considered for that type of retirement. And I mean, you want to talk about a whole nother line course of stigma like that oh, yeah. is like you, you've just said, yep, I'm going for this retirement. And complete abandonment by the agency man oh yeah not from my team thank god i have my team because they were so amazing when i ultimately went and talked to them and said hey this is what i've chosen to do i mean hugs i love you tears a guy met with me afterwards he said you just gave me the courage i'm gonna go talk to someone because i told him my whole story because my lieutenant was like you don't need to do that travis i'll do it for you i'm like nope my guys need to hear from me. Like we've been blood, sweat, and tears together. I want them to hear from me. And that was really, I mean, if you look back, that's really how I started any of this because that was the first time I'm like, holy shit, there's another SWAT guy that's struggling. And ultimately, I think there's maybe, I don't know if there's five or six different guys off the team that have been going for consistent help since. And it's probably going to help them finish their careers. And even some of their wives have, you know, contacted me and said, Travis, if it would not have been for you making that step that they knew you could do it, they wouldn't have done it. Yep. So that's, that was probably my whole reason to start, like, finally to say, hey, man, there must be something here. Like, my team can't be this only group of individuals that are struggling, but just need that, I guess, push or yeah. The leadership say, hey, I'm going to come forward and lead the way. I don't know, man. Yeah. No, dude. Yeah, that's uh, that was a big step. And that does show true leadership. 
Cause I mean, yeah, there are so many people that would have just been like, okay, LT, you go do that. And I'm going to slide out the back door. Right. You know, yeah. just because of yep. how the culture is. Oh dude, but it's terrible, man. Yeah. We, it, and I hate to say it and I, I don't, I don't like putting people on the spot about this kind of stuff because it is so personal and all of that, but kind of the way, and like I said, the reason that we started the podcast was to get it out there and to try to help other people, right? Head, head it off yep. at the pass, so to speak, but it's right. almost like, and I'm starting to feel more and more, it's almost a responsibility. It's, you know, you have yeah. to, if you go yep. through this, you owe it. And, and that's not even probably the right word, but that's what I'm going to use. You owe it to the people that you've worked with to stand mm -hmm. up and say something because you, right. wouldn't, you wouldn't sit there and, you know, if you had a sniper aimed at one of your guys, you wouldn't just sit there and go, well, he's going to figure that out. You know, right. you would, you would do yeah. something about it. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I think where you're coming from and what I've struggled with is like, you never want to condemn someone that isn't willing to talk about it. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I would encourage, it's been healing for me to talk about it. Like me telling you sitting here and telling you about Ruby. When I first went to Jen, I couldn't get a sentence out and I'm not just sobbing. And then even as um, recent as two weeks ago at the National Tactical Officer Association where I'm, where I was speaking, the emotions well up and I, I literally had to pause for a second. I'm like, I'm going to be okay. But then to get through it and tell the story, because I do feel a responsibility now. And I even went through a time. I can tell you some things that I did. Like when I started making these videos on Instagram to where I was kind of, I pulled back for like a month to six weeks. And I told Emily, I'm like, no one gives a shit about this. Why am I even doing it? And someone sent me a message saying like, dude, where's your videos? Like you have no idea. And these mean a lot to me. And then I've, I mean, Jeremy, I could give you countless people that across the country, some people from other countries, like because of Andy Stump's podcast saying like, thank you for sharing your story. Like, holy shit. Like, I can't believe that someone that did what you did are willing to share. So yeah, I do. I've now like, how can I not do this? As difficult as it may be, like, I sure as hell ain't getting rich. I could go, I got people offering <laughs> me jobs all over the place. Like, hey, come move dirt around, do whatever, make this kind of money. But I'm like, at this point, like, okay, I've been given a voice. I do feel like I do need to say something. And, but again, coming back, like, I don't want to condemn anyone that doesn't. But if there's any way you could, and I do. I want to start a podcast to where I would like bring different people on to share their specific post-traumatic stress stories because there's healing in that. And like, yes, I can talk from my world. You can talk from your world, but maybe there's a story out there that specifically touches someone else. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. To where, I mean, you, and I, I say it all the time. If we can help one more person, that's freaking huge, man. We would do that when we're working the job, right? If you're working someone on a code or whatever, like if I can help this person, I'm going to do it. Or when yeah. I was, you know, running and gunning, if I can do that hostage rescue and save that person, I'm going to do it. So how is this? This really isn't any different, no. you know, in my yeah. opinion. 
No, it's not. It's not. It's just a different form of it. That's mm -hmm. all it is. And, and ultimately yeah. it's helping our brothers and sisters. Oh, you know, exactly. it's, and I'm not saying that the public, you know, can't get something out of it and all that stuff. I, cause I think anybody can get, you know, out of our stories, you know, right. and the things that we talk we about, can. anybody can get something out of it, but the people that we are talking about and talking to other firefighters, yeah. other police officers, veterans, you know, those are the people that we're trying to help by doing this. And those, those are our blood our brothers and sisters mm -hmm. that we have been in the trenches with doing the most horrendous crap that you can think about. And yeah, that's who I'm trying to help. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be like, you know, when you look at the whole podcast thing, I mean, there's so many podcasts now. Oh yeah. But you're like, Oh, if I don't have this many, I'm not reaching this many people. You think about it, brother. If you're reaching a hundred people, that's more people than you have control of over work. That's mm -hmm. more people than I had control over work. You know what I mean? Yeah. If I'm reaching 900 people, that's more than my whole department. So yeah. I look at it like it's easy to get wrapped up like, oh, I'm not touching this many people. But you just never know the one time you get on here and talk or share your story with someone to where you just push someone or gave them the courage to come forward. Yeah. And I. Yeah, I'm right with you, man. Like if we can help one more person or we, I feel like you do. I feel like I have a responsibility now to keep pushing forward. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. I, I think you and I are probably of, of one mind about that. So. I think so too, man. <laughs> I knew that one. Yeah. When we talked on the phone, but yeah. yeah so I'm, once I decided, uh, once I decided to put in that paperwork, I mean, it's a whole nother hell to be quite honest with you, man, because again, the city doesn't really help you. You know, I actually had a conversation with an assistant chief that was pretty good to where after everything had been done this past August and I knew her because when I mentioned that team leader, that was kind of my mentor, that's her husband and he's since retired, but um, we met, we shed tears together realizing that yeah the city's not handling some shit appropriately to where when you put in that paperwork they just like oh fmla we can't talk to that employee blah 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 and i gave her so many like that's a simple fix to me like so assign another employee that or a lieutenant or whoever just reaches out to say travis how are you today how's the family how's things going because yeah. when they cut off all communication from you at least in my experience, well, and everyone else I've talked to that have went down this road, you feel like, well, do you not like what I'm doing? Are you condemning me? Yep. You know, there's something yep. there. Well, so, your, brain, your brain's going to fill in the, the oh, void spaces. It's a game of mad absolutely. <laughs> it, it, it You are so right. Like you will fill in the blanks. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, and I am a type of personality where like, hey, if you're not going to help me, I'll do it all done. So I pretty much push myself through that. Even my labor organization, they're kind of hands off because they never want to seem like they're pushing guys to go down this road, whatever it may be. So I was like, screw it. I'll do this on my own. And I did. And we had to go through and I, I've heard it's different processes for every place, but I had to then go to two different independent medical examiners, they call them. So I had to go through two extensive long interviews with practitioners to 
I had to tell the story all over again, which is bullshit. Cause I'm like, can't you just look at my notes for my therapist and psychiatrist? But no, I had to regurgitate everything. So emotions, the only good thing that came out of that, because you still are questioning like, Hey, am I doing the right thing is the second medical examiner. She, she teared up, started crying. And she's like, Travis, I've never heard a story like this. And I cannot believe you've made it for five years. Like this would have taken a lot of people out from day one. That gave me a little bit of like, kind of like, hell yeah, assholes. Like, <laughs> see, I pushed through, you know, yeah. it was good. But after a year long, man, it goes through and it goes to the board and they have to vote on it. And they approved it and gave me my, you know, my pension. And so, yeah, I ended up, um, and I, I mean, you want to keep, I assume we can keep going here a little bit. Yeah. I, like okay. I said, dude, so, I, this records right yeah. to my computer. So I've got right a on. bunch of room. So, <laughs> so I'll tell you, um, yeah. So how I got to kind of doing what I'm doing is, um, nope, my wife and I had already purchased 13 acres up here. In, yeah. Phillipsburg, Montana. Okay. And prior to all this going on, well, because this was going on, we're like, okay, we're going to speed this process up. So we moved up here in March of this year. And I had, in the SWAT world, I had made friends with a guy who, he was a longtime team leader in Tri-Cities, Washington, and then ended up coming over to Flathead County, which is Kalispell area, to mm -hmm. be the undersheriff for one of his friends. And I had just recently told him my story. He knew I was retired, but he didn't know why. So I told him everything. Well, he calls me up. I'm literally driving up here with a 26-foot trailer behind me, moving shit up. He's like, hey, Travis, uh, we have a tactical leadership conference up in Kalispell. You want to come up and do a debrief? I know you're done with work now. Meaning like, hey, come debrief a hostage rescue, debrief a barricade. You yeah. know, and that's, we talked about lessons learned, all this bullshit. And I said, oh yeah, sure, no problem. I can do, I've got many of those I can talk about and, you know, put up a presentation. But then I'm, I hang up and driving a little ways and I'm like, hell no. I said, I wonder what he'd think about me coming and talking about post-traumatic stress in our community. So I called him up and he's like, hell yes. He's like, yep, let's do it. So I had like two weeks to prepare and I, I go and present to these people again, super nervous, man. Like I'm not only in front of SWAT people, I'm in front of SWAT people. I don't know. So I'm mm -hmm. thinking like, you know, and these guys are like, this is a whole leadership conference. They're talking about barricades, hostage rescues, you know, lessons learned. And now I'm going to get up and talk about my feelings. Like what the hell? <laughs> so super, super nervous, man. Like, cause yeah. I still, even though I knew my team embraced me, I, you know, I could sell that as like, well, yeah, I'm also their friends, you know, that I've known for a long time. Yeah. So I give my presentation at that point. I still, like I always get emotional and like had to pause. And I do it, I get a standing ovation and they like numerous people come up after and like, thank you so much for being willing to talk about this, not only law enforcement community, talk about it in the SWAT community. Cause again, we're a bunch of knuckle dragon, knuckle idiots <laughs> that like think we're bigger than life, you know? And I was like, holy shit, this is pretty amazing. Like, I can't believe they took it like this. Well. Someone that was in there is 
they had connection with Andy Stump and the Cleared Hot podcast because he's up in Kalispell now and he's really befriended the law enforcement community. He just works with them, does good stuff. Yeah. Someone contacted me and said, hey, do you want to, would you be interested in going on his podcast? I'm like, well, I'd listened to it before. I'm like, yeah, but I'm thinking this dude's not, I'm just some freaking yeah. low, whatever, you know, like why the hell is yeah. he going to want me on there? That dude knows and, Joe uh, Rogan. <laughs> exactly. That's how he got started in his podcast. Exactly. I'm like, this dude's not wanting me on there. But then, so we connect with some text, Andy and I do, and kind of dies off. And that's kind of the time where I'm thinking like, yeah, this shit isn't going to go anywhere. I come up here to Montana. I'm working construction, just helping out the guy that's going to ultimately build my house just pretty much to kill time and make a little extra money. And ultimately it kind of fires up again. And yeah, he wants to book the date. Um, so we're going to do that. And then all in that same time, uh, some guys that have been in that original presentation, they were putting together the Chiefs Conference in Montana. They're like, hey, do you, will you come and speak here? I'm like, okay. And then right after that, the National Tactical Officers Association contacts me. Like, yeah. And what's cool about what I did at the NTOA, the National Conference, my therapist came along with me and we put together this presentation to where talk about my career, where I was. And then she's, once the storyline comes to going to her, she talks about, you know, the signs, symptoms, giving her clinical review, talking about what the therapy looks like. We talk about all sorts of shit with brain scans, alternative treatments, things like that. And then yeah, man, I do the Chiefs Conference. Now some other things are snowballing from there. I might be contracting with a couple PDs, just helping them. Again, remember how I told you about some PDs don't have like critical incidents defined. How do you respond to critical incidents? Yeah. So just kind of letting it go where it goes, man. But it's kind of crazy. That, uh, <laughs> that sounds like an awesome presentation and very to the point, you know? Yeah. Like it's a... Uh, God, I wish I had better words sometimes. Well, but it, it, it's I guess, one of the, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say what people came up and told us afterwards, they liked hearing from my layman's terms, what I was feeling, what I thought I was experiencing. And then she can come alongside and give the clinical aspect of that. And then she also talks about why she formulated how she treated me from the standpoint of like getting me stabilized, the man in the arena issued, all those yeah. things that she, I mean, like I'm sure your wife tells you, they don't just wing nut the shit all over the place. Like no. it's a plan, yeah. if, if it's a good one. I, yeah. Obviously that other therapist, I think he's a wing nut one. That just well, like it's, whatever. A one, it's a one size fits all for a lot of them. Right, You know, but if you're going, and we'll talk, we have talked about this when we presented that, I do believe like if you're not getting good help from a certain therapist, then go shop around. Absolutely. Because if you have a therapist that has buy-in to uh, first responders and what we go through, I think that's gigantic, man. And you will be able to tell if they, if they really know what they're doing and they're formulating a plan for you specifically versus like what you just said, one size fits all. Yeah, Travis, dude, I mean, I've hit that point so many times of, look, here's the thing. You're not, you could go to this therapist and just, you don't click. 
you have to yeah. try the next therapist and maybe the therapist that you're going to, maybe you have a decent relationship with, but you need to do EMDR or you need to do neurofeedback yep. or you need to do, you know, equine therapy or, or whatever it is that that's right. going to work for you. And they can't do that. You got to find yep. somebody. And that's the important part of keep looking, keep moving forward. Like your yes. shirt says, which I almost wore that shirt tonight, by the way. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> I was like, no, I'll wear my other Tilvahala shirt. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's cool. No, I agree, man. I've heard you say that before, but I mean, we're stubborn, just like what I was doing that other therapist. I think I was kind of checking the box like, well, I'm going this guy. He doesn't say I really need anything. I'm good. Let's keep going. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, so, you know, sometimes it's uh, some of us are a little bit thick in the head of uh, we actually oh, have man, a problem. <laughs> terrible. Yes. So, and it seems to be, uh, it, it's more common than we would like to admit in uh, these professions. Yes. <laughs> yes, I agree. Yeah. So what's your, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, you just kind of went over doing more speaking engagements, thinking about doing the podcast thing. So, right. Um, what I'm doing with it. Yeah. I mean, right now, my passion, like I said, in the I think I talked about in the beginning, like I really do want to touch early on in people's careers, like trying to, whether it's through academies, whether it's through getting a hold of people in the FTO process to try to change the culture from the beginning to they know that it's okay. Like, Hey, if you're having, like my therapist, you know, working with Phoenix fire, she would tell people, and again, I don't think there's anything scientific behind this, but her gauge is if three days after the call, you still can't get thoughts, images out of your head, they're constantly flooding probably a good idea to go talk to somebody. Uh, yeah. Get, right. I mean, and it doesn't well, mean that you need to be taken off work, but it may mean like, Hey, let's do some maintenance here. Let's work on this a little bit. Yeah. You know? Well, so, and I'm sure your therapist probably talked to you about this, you know, PTS post-traumatic stress is 100% normal. Everybody gets it. They might yes. not even realize that they get it. Right. Where it starts to be a problem is whenever it turns into PTSD that can take as yes. little as seven days. Yes. Yep. That so, is so good. You said that. Cause I, yeah. And I probably need to be preaching that more because everyone in our career is you're not going to come out unscathed. You are going to deal at the very least post-traumatic stress in the acute form. Yeah. But what we want to try to prevent, like you said, is that where it gets, cemented in it's the disorder you can't get out of this loop yeah. of going back and forth and that's why man it just i dream for a day and i i mean you know how our bureaucracies are and, and as first responders fire departments police departments the wheel is so flipping slow oh yeah but like maybe oh, yeah. it's like a generation from now to where it's like yep yeah i just the shitty call and this is what I agree with my therapist on this and I've talked to other therapists, whatever your, I mean, we could sit here and talk about what is a critical incident and what, how do we define it? You know, what are officer involved shooting, uh, murder, suicides, whatever it may be, child death. So like my therapist, she tries to get this ingrained. If you're involved in one of, the, one of those critical incidents, you're 40 hours off right now, like just to go home, reset within that first 40 hours, 
you're going to go in and you're going to see a therapist. You're going to see, do a check-in. At that point, they may say, yep, I'm doing fine. Therapist doesn't see anything. You go on. But then you're going to have a 30, 60, 90, 120-day checkup to where, because what she likes about that, and I agree, she now during those times is building a relationship. And maybe at the 30-day mark, you're still seeming like everything's cool. But maybe at the 120-day, now that they kind of know you, uh, something's off here. Yeah. Now we may yeah. need to say, let's go with some more sessions, which I really like that model. And I do understand the whole word mandated scares a lot of people off. Oh, yeah. It, it scares the 40 hours off scares administrators because you're talking money. You yep. got to give them time yep. off. But I would say this, man, don't we? It is cheaper to pay on the front end than it is on the back end. So let's right take <laughs> holy take care of our right take yeah. care of our people you know because and again in this world of retention you know we got recruitment let's talk retention if you're a chief or you're a, a police chief a fire chief and you're which i know our chiefs are every week how do we keep people here that are already here that is an easy like jump over down this little box of saying okay, well, we need to make sure our people are okay to continue for 20, 25 years. Well, when now we're talking mental health. Yeah. So wouldn't we want to pay for those couple things versus, nope, they're just out the door at 10 years. They're out the door at 15 years. And you know what I'm saying? So yeah. to me, or you pay for a couple of, you know, hundred dollar sessions for them to go talk yes. to a therapist instead of, yep. well, let's just bury our head in the sand and then, okay, well now we're going to pay 80, 90, a hundred thousand dollars for that person to be institutionalized for a month. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. My man. Yeah. Yeah. And that is so to, and again, man, I'm not, I will not, I'm not judging the people in those positions because I haven't walked it. But now so many people are coming out like you and I have and talking about our stories. And like, maybe you should listen to us a little bit yeah. to where we'll, we'll let's see, get you're, ahead of it. You, you're, you're talking about common sense, Travis, <laughs> with public yeah. safety. And I'm going to need you to stop that you. right now. <laughs> I know. Hey, you know how many times I've heard that in a meeting to where, yep, now you're talking about common sense. Yep. I get it. And it, you are so right. But I, I'm hoping that enough people come forward and maybe we start talking about it. and i am seeing some pretty cool things of um you know across the country there's pockets here and there of people doing what you're doing what i'm doing trying to talk about it trying to get the message out but when you're talking i mean i don't know how many firefighters are in the country you know police officers there's up around a million yeah. i mean to reach yeah. all of them and the agencies and to just get this to be commonplace and we we have to get community buy-in. They have to understand, like, I mean, we can talk about, okay, you think officers use too much force. You think this and that. Okay, well, let's make sure we're keeping their stress levels at a certain place. We're getting them help so they can go out there and respond in a professional way. Because if anyone thinks that, whether it's firefighters or police officers, we go out there and everything's going to go perfect, but we're not taking care of their mental health. You're freaking crazy, man. Like, I mean, and it's, yeah, there is, I'll tell you, man, when I was in my dark days, I, I didn't do anything like 
illegal or anything like that. But believe me, I was looking for the person like who's going to resist us tonight because oh, yeah. it just got out some aggression. Like that's just being honest, man. Yeah. And if you think like I would challenge any human being to say, would you be any different? You can't think that that's not going to happen. Right. If you deal with the same and you know, we deal with it in a, in a different way on the fireside than yeah. you guys do on, on PD, but you deal with those same piece of society over and over and over again. And it's like beating your head up against a brick wall. Oh man, How frustrated or how long is it going to take you to get frustrated? And then, hey. so let's add on, okay. Lack of sleep, um, yes. personal problems at home because you work too much because yep. your organization is short staffed and right. it, okay. So let's start stacking and going down the list of mm -hmm. what do we expect yep. is going to happen? And, and believe me, man, I've seen firefighters where you can tell they are fed up to where it's another stupid ass medical call. Mm -hmm. And you were like, holy shit. Like, yeah, woke up in the middle of the night or maybe I was just trying to get some sleep and yeah, the way they might treat the public, no different than our mm -hmm. officers. Like, yep, you are on your, you're stressed out. Yeah. Whether it's home, professional, whatever it may be. And we're dealing with the worst of worst of society. There's going to be chinks in the armor. There mm -hmm. just is. Yeah. So that's where I would sell to the, the cities. And like, man, I'm, I don't know what it's like in the firefighter world, but right now I've posted this before. There are this year alone, more police officers have died by suicide than by gunfire from suspects. That mm -hmm. is an epidemic. Yeah. And if you as a chief aren't talking to your people about it and talking to the community about it, then you are failing at leadership in my opinion, yeah. because that's freaking crazy, man. Like that is unacceptable shit. And that's not even talking about the retirees yeah. that are committing suicide. Like Jen, my therapist told me one of the biggest things I remember when I was trying to decide, like, am I going to go through this EMDR shit? Am I going to take this step to Travis within the first, I see, or she said, I see so many people within the first five years of retirement where things have slowed down and they are in freaking shambles because they never dealt with shit. I didn't mm. want to be that person, but that's what's happening, man. Yeah. So. Well, and so I could tell you on the fire side, I, whenever I was starting the podcast, I was doing a whole bunch of research and all that stuff. And I came across a white paper from, I want to say 2018 ish, 2019 that had some numbers right. from the 2015 to 17 or whatever. And yep more firefighters die or dying by suicide than line of duty deaths. And it's consistently every year. And it's not like, uh, I think the number that they threw out was something like 350 ish had died by suicide, which I mean, we'll lose 20, crazy, 25. Man. Yeah. Yeah. And unbelievable. But they, in the paper, they said, we actually expect this number to be at least 50% higher because yep. of inaccurate reporting because you know uh, yeah yep. you're not going to get that insurance payout if it's a suicide that's so, true yeah oh no billy he he slipped and fell on his gun you know or right. you know that rope just magically got around his yeah. neck or however it was done you know right so no i agree and that's man that is yeah that's just i mean it's 
sickening. It's mind numbing, like freaking crazy that that's going on. And I just, but then man, as you sit in your place and I sit in my place and you think about our careers, it's not really shocking when you think mm -hmm. about day in and day out. I was just recently, oh, I was talking to this other therapist and he came through uh, he's a Marine Corps guy, did some, he was over there during the shit in 2006, 2007, Romaldi, just nasty, gets out, thinks, I just need to get away from that. Then he goes and does, of course, the contract work, so he's back over there again, <laughs> that shit, you know, like, yeah. and then he goes, he goes to, he actually ended up in Arizona and it's floundering and it's bad, has to get into a treatment center but he comes out. So this guy, but he's talking about, he said, again, military guy, like it's a different thing, but yet there's so much similarities. But it, he said, from what I've seen, what I know, like for first responders, like there's no going home from deployment. It is, you know, every single day of the week, like at least 40 hours, probably more, you can't get away from it. Yeah. And there's just no respite, you know, and I don't, I thought about that. I'm like, yeah, man. I'm like, if you think you're going to come out of that seeing the worst of the worst, like we're pretty freaking naive to be, to think yeah. that way. But that's how you and I coming up through the ranks. Like that's how we were trained. Like, yep, just oh, yeah. get over. It's part of the job, yeah. you know, have a beer. Keep you'll pushing. be fine. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. The drinking in our culture of like, yep, let's go drink and we'll be okay. Or your party or, Go buy a new truck, buy a new boat, go into more debt to try to help yourself. Yep. Oh, if I'm on my Harley this weekend, I won't forget or I won't have to think about any of this shit anymore. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's bad. Yeah. I, whenever I went through my inpatient therapy, it was a kind of a joint thing that we have here with uh, firefighters, cops, and veterans. And okay. one, of the, one of the veterans that was in there was a 18 year SF guy. And okay. we kind of struck up a friendship and we sat and talk and he's like, I don't know how you do what you do. And this is a guy who's yeah. deployed, you know, Africa, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, like he's been there and done, you know, all of that stuff. And he's like, right. I, I couldn't do that. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah. I couldn't do what he did. You know, I know that's, a, it's, it's weird how we both see that. Cause I think that too, like, yeah, I mean, but it's, it's so true. I think no. they see the it's more condensed in a very short period of time versus ours is very sustained for a very long period of time. So I, yeah, I mean, obviously yeah. your wife and other people can get more into the brain. I don't understand that. What's worse. What's better. It's all shit at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, Trauma's we're all trauma at the stuff. end of the day. Yeah. And if we don't deal with it, you know, I think some of the, I mean, probably the most, the biggest group I see really leading the way is like the, the seal group seems like a lot of them are coming forward to mm -hmm. say like, Hey, we fuck some things up here. We got to change. And so, yeah, they're kind of leading the way with that. And now, you know, hopefully us and as the first responders are going to follow up with that and make it okay. And I, I mean, at the end of the day, man, I just tell anyone like whether your administration is not making it okay. If you feel like you're going to lose position, like you're, you as a person are more important than all that. I know that we breed that different that like a lot of us get wrapped up in who we are uh, in our job and that's who we are as a person. 
but at the end of the day, like, I just want you to be okay. And I want you to enjoy your family and live a life. Like you can do lots of other shit besides be a first responder. Yeah. You're more, you're more than a uniform. You're a husband, a father, an uncle, a brother, a sister, a dad, a mom, you just go down the list. The uniform is what it is. You you take that off eventually. Exactly. Yes. So I agree, man. Got to have a life outside of it. Got to. And I, I honestly, man, I wasn't good at that. I lived my job. I was, you know, and I always had a big turmoil about that because I felt like to keep myself alive, like that's who I needed to be 24 seven. I felt like if I came down, I was going to lose my edge. My wife, on the other hand, she's amazing. She killed it at work. She was one of those that like very rarely wanted overtime, but she had, you know, she does stained glass and art thing on the side and she could walk away from it and shut it off. Yeah. I'm like, at times I'm like, holy shit, I wish I could do that. <laughs> but I just, I just didn't, you know, and I, some of that man is self-imposed, but some of it is agency imposed to where I talk about in my presentation to remind leaders you know, the old saying, good work brings more work. You know, we as leaders, you as a captain, me as a sergeant, I knew my people that no matter what, if I asked them to do something, they were going to get shit done. Yep. And so, like, I put some people, like, I asked too much of them to where they were going 24-7 like I was. And we as leaders need to step back and say, hey, maybe I need to spread the wealth a little bit. Maybe I need to mentor these other people, you know, yeah. to bring them up. But it's easy. You know how when you're running and gunning, shifts going, whatever, like, yep, whoever, hey, Bob, get this done. And you could walk away and know that, yep, they're good to go. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, that was one of the uh, the first conversations that I had because um, my position now is I'm the district safety officer for my battalion. Okay. So basically I drive the chief around and, you know, we get to a fire or a car wreck or whatever it may be. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm the safety guy. You know, are you driving and the chief sitting next to you? Oh yeah. Yeah. I wanted that chief spot, man. Like, Cause we so, had, we had, we had some, we had SWAT medics assigned to us, but they had their duties. You know, yeah. they would just come out on call outs and a couple of them moved up into those chiefs position. They, we'd have a house fire and they'd roll up and I'd be like, you son of a bitch. How do you get that? <laughs> get drove around, sit there in your radio and like sit in the car I'm like, that is a badass job. <laughs> oh yeah. It's, it's fun. Uh, they, you know, and I'm contemplating, you know, I've got about four years until I can take the battalion chiefs tests. And so okay. I'm kind of thinking about it and I'm in a good position, um, doing the DSO job to really yeah. see the inner workings of it because I work hand in hand with the battalion chief every day. Um, yeah. but one of the first conversations that I had with all the guys, um, that are in my district is look if we're on a grass fire we're in a house fire whatever and i tell you to go take a break go take a break because that's my job is basically to look out for you i want everybody to go home at the end of the shift i'm and i've been that firefighter and i was that firefighter for a long time that i would work and work and work until i couldn't hold an axe in my hands anymore you know or i'd just be falling down because i'd be so tired I don't want anybody else to do that. For one, it's unsafe. You know, right. you could hurt somebody else or you could hurt yourself. So right. it's my job now to make sure to kind of rein them back in, 
Yeah. <laughs> like you look, you're doing a fantastic job. I love what you're doing, but go get some water and set your ass on the pumper. <laughs> it's so funny because yeah, like, I didn't often have to pull out the asshole Travis to where with my team guys, but the time that I did would be like, yeah, we're on a barricade and it's hot as shit. And like, I would make sure I'm rotating guys out of like very important roles to come back, get some water. But those are the times I'm, they'd be like, no, I'm good boss. I'm like, no, you aren't hearing me. I'm telling you, yeah. this is what you're going to do right now. Those yep. are the only times with my team I needed to really like push that authority. Like, no, your team leader is now telling you you're going to do this. That's funny. Cause yeah. yeah, you have your hard chargers. They just don't want to let go. They're like, yep. What's the next mission? Let's go. Yep. You know? But hindsight being 2020 as leaders, I think we need to take a good look in the mirror and look at our people that we're, you know, over and say like, hey, am I pushing this person too much? You know, can I, again, spread the wealth? Because yeah, I think it's, it's easy for us to do that. Like, yep, that guy's going to get it done. So I, yeah, I would encourage leaders to maybe step back and evaluate that to how they're, how they're treating their people and how they're delegating responsibility yeah well and it's like you said uh mentor some other people for sure you know give them the opportunity to get better because if you're just giving it all to one person or two people or three people you know those people they're getting you know the experience and all of that stuff but those other people they need that experience too and they need those skills so yeah share the wealth (laughs) Right. I agree. I agree, man. Yeah. Oh, dude, it's been, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I've, I've had yeah, so much fun. You as well, man. Um, yeah. This went really well. And I, yeah. I appreciate you giving me, I mean, again, kudos to you for having the podcast. I appreciate you. You know, this will reach a couple more people and just, you know, um, getting the voice out and keep going with that. And I, I do appreciate you for, reaching out to me and being willing to have me on for sure. Well, I, I appreciate, you have no idea how much I appreciate you sharing your story and being willing to talk about it because, you know, we, we talked about that earlier. Not everybody is. And I think it's so critical and so key for people to stand up that, you know, have been through it and come out the other side and say, Hey, look, yeah, you, you're going to struggle. And, but this is what can happen. And this is what you can do after that. It's not a death sentence. It's not a, you know, it's not a mark of shame or anything like that. It just, it is what it is. Let's move forward past it because you can. Yeah. And I, you know, man, you saying that right there, like, I guess if anyone's listening to this and they can see the both of us that have walked through the hell, we're on the other side of it now, like it is achievable. You know, you just, not saying it's going to be easy. You're going to have to have some tough talks with yourself. You're going to have to look at some shit, deal with some stuff. But if you can push through and get to the other side, man, there's no, it, it's huge and it'll be worth it. And you'll be able to help other people for sure. Absolutely. Well, Travis, thanks for coming right, on, man. man. I, uh, yeah. I look forward to thanks, uh, seeing some more Instagram posts from you and uh, yeah. we'll maybe see. having you back on the show again. And I can't wait I'd for love you to it, start man. your I own podcast. It. Yeah, we'll see. I'm I'm thinking about it, man. So yeah, I appreciate it, brother. Cool. Well, I'll end this episode like I end everyone. Uh, If you are struggling, reach out. The resources are out there. 
if you know somebody that is struggling, reach out, let them know you care, let them know resources are available. And uh, yeah, thanks for stopping by and we'll see you next time.